The Unquiet Dead. The first Christmas story of Doctor Who's revived series. The first New Who episode not to be written by showrunner Russell T. Davis. The first New Who story set in the past. The first New Who celebrity historical. The originator of the Cardiff Rift, which would drive so much of Doctor Who and Torchwood to come. There's a lot that's seminal about this story. And (laughs) a lot of paratextual stuff from 2005 that I want to dig into. But I think this is also a story with plenty of meat on its own bones to talk about as well. So, joining me this December to discuss this Christmas episode are Ingiga and Oliver, both from wintry England. (laughs) Uh, Before we get into the episode, when did you guys first see this one? When did you first see The Unquiet Dead? On broadcast. Mm, Me too. It was not on broadcast for me. Uh, It would have been maybe around 2011-ish or 2010-ish, like basically when I was catching up with the whole show, having only really gotten into it with um, Smith. So yeah. Hmm. on the whole recap of the RCD run that I did. How did young Oliver receive this episode? Gonna be honest, I was far too young to remember. I always liked it as the first historical one, but um, it was, even as a kid, my least favourite huh. historical in series one. I found it less impressive than, than the World War Two two-parter. Interesting. Uh, young Neo liked this one a lot. I would have seen this when I was about 11, um, this is one of the ones I rewatched on DVD more than some of the others. I was I was quite taken with this one. It wasn't one of my very favourites, like uh, Father's Day, but I enjoyed a lot about this one. And it's been a very interesting one to revisit with more adult eyes, I guess you could say. Have any of our perceptions of this episode changed over time? Like you say, the paratextual stuff, which obviously I wasn't keyed into. As a kid, I, I went away and did homework for this. Uh, that's all very interesting. We're going to get into that later. Um, I'd say on revisiting it, I see more of its qualities than maybe I did uh, before. Like I, It was one that I tend to just kind of overlook. I think a lot of RTDs run that I just <laughs> maybe sort of dismissed just because it wasn't doing the same um, metaphysical hijinks and conceptual vaults that, you know, Series 5 was uh, indulging in. So I was kind of giving it, wasn't giving it as fair dues back then when I originally watched it. But yeah, there are, there are quite a few things to like about this episode. Okay, well, the episode is a historical and I want to launch into a bit of history about where this episode came from. So... When RTD was reviving the show, he had a bit of a series Bible setting out his uh, little briefs for each of the episodes, you know, many of which, well, actually not many, which some of which other writers would on board to write themselves. For The Unquiet Dead, uh, his outline included, my name's Dickens, Charles Dickens, and that was to have Charles Dickens in it and be uh, historical, be set in the past, be the third episode of the show, and involve a steam-driven ectoplasm machine which can draw ghosts out of walls, uh, the ghosts being gas beings and the machine being a weapon. I knew pretty much immediately that there was going to be a sort of series Bible and in the episode sort of uh, guide, as it were, each story had a, a, a small paragraph and um, one of them was about a Victorian story in Cardiff with Charles Dickens and uh, seances essentially and uh, I thought well I hope that's the one he wants me to do and hey poncho it was the best thing you can have as, as a writer is just suddenly a collision of ideas and I got very excited immediately I thought I know I, can, I know what I can do with this and the point of this third episode was for the audience and Rose to 
experience the past. Episode three is designed to show off, you know, um, the range of the program to go back in history, um, you know, and and I decided the template for the entire series right at the beginning of it. So it was like, you know, I wanted to go back Victorian. I wanted an episode set in Cardiff because I think it's quite important that we're made in Cardiff. We put Cardiff on screen and get a Welsh cast in there. And I wanted Charles Dickens in there. Get a taste of the format of the show that it can start in the present, then it can propel into the future, and then it can go back into the past. A structure that everyone's stuck to for a good few years, didn't they? I'm trying to think when they first didn't do that structure. Like, it must have, can't have been until, what, series uh, seven, eight? Like, they must have, they kept it going quite a while. Series six got the two-parter that opens in the past, so. Oh, yeah, that's true. I I guess that's the break. Series four tweaked, uh, let's go to the the past before the future but i mean that's very minor i don't think it was until series six anyone really changed this paradigm so it was a very successful way of making the show function so the original idea victorian story cardiff dickens seances when gatus looked over that little series bible brief thing obviously (laughs) that's the one gatus wanted to do he said he immediately had ideas just bursting in his brain as soon as he saw that because this is kind of Gatiss's wheelhouse, wouldn't you say? Well, well, how would you describe Gatiss's wheelhouse? Victoriana. Victoriana. Nostalgia. Nostalgia. Uh, genre pastiche, but like pretty faithful genre pastiche, sort of just doing the genre again. Yes, and also, in his words, uh, death. I've always had a bit of a thing about possession. I was a very morbid child and I was always obsessed with death and funeral arrangements and everything like that. Alan Bennett says we all have only a few beans in our tin to rattle and I think he's dead right. And uh, It's something I keep coming back to. There's an element of sort of disembodied ghostliness and ghost stories, I think. That's what I like the most. So it all felt right for this. He really, well, likes, he's really <laughs> fascinated by death. And that's one of the reasons he says he's so drawn to the Victorian era is because he thinks it has such a uh, death fixation. Also, Dickens specifically, um, he's a very big fan of. Um, yeah. But the interesting thing with that is uh, he was resistant to the usage of Dickens for a while uh, in the initial drafts of the story. Why do you think I mean, by now, Celebrity Historical is such a a fixed format of Doctor Who. Why do you think Gatiss was sort of resistant to the idea of actually having a a celebrated figure of history in a Doctor Who episode at first? Maybe he was worried about uh, messing with the the history or the timeline too much or disrespecting a real person. I I don't know. You're not thinking like Gatiss thinks. (laughs) The the reason he didn't want to do it is because Classic Who didn't really do it. I was going to say. Oh, right. Dickens was a a challenge. It's something I initially resisted. I mean, it was in in the brief. Oh, the Muttley. It was was all part of the sort of headline-grabbing nature of the first season. It's like, you know, it's very simple. It's even on the Radio Times. Doctor Who meets Dickens. It's all you need. It's a pitch, you know. But I did resist it because... I think largely Doctor Who has dealt with historical figures best in the third person, you know. Since Marco Polo, you've not really got... There's a few in the 60s that have celebrity figures in them. And then what? You've got a couple of Colin Baker stories? Yeah, not exactly very well-remembered Colin Baker stories either. No. But it wasn't a... 
it, it wasn't a winning formula for the show the way that uh, New Who made it. I, there's there's beats in this episode that Vincent and the Doctor did, which reverberated through culture at an absolutely crazy scale. You see the YouTube views on the um, Vincent with the pop music as he looks at the museum clip, and it's just it's off the scale, far beyond Doctor Who fandom or far beyond you know general British appreciation of Doctor Who. These kind of beats of what if we could go back and show historical figure that your work perseveres and that uh, you really are great and let's all have a party over how great you are. That was very successful with The Unquiet Dead and then it was successful again when New Who did that with other figures as well. So I think RTD really uh, had his eye on the ball. It's interesting how long the episode holds off on Dickens as well. Um, he's not in the opening sting. Um, he, he gets he gets waited on um, a good way into the episode. Uh, and then is introduced with the line, the great, great man, very much setting up uh, the the new avenue for Doctor Who historicals that would all be focused on great men mm. and a couple of great women in history. And you even get, like you're saying, the Vincent ending uh, happens pretty much beat for beat in this, where you get that final moment of you'll be remembered forever and here's a new lease on life. Go off back to your own time and... And, and have a good time with it. And die. But unfortunately, nothing actually changes. Yeah. <laughs> I think the reason... Well, the reason I find Dickens in this episode successful and like something that totally works is the same reason that Gatiss was brought over to it eventually. And it's that in initial conceptions of the episode, the story was set quite a bit earlier when Dickens did actually historically visit Cardiff. Uh, but eventually the idea came about why don't we put it right at the end, you know, very, very close to his death, which is a less popular uh, conceptualization of Dickens, this very depleted man, this man whose his family matters are all asunder. He's at a very kind of degraded state of life. Uh, he's, he's, he's dying, basically. He's a few months away from death, which isn't the kind of Dickensian vision we typically get with how he's represented. And that is what the actor, Simon Callow, I was totally won over by. And of course, he has... Well, well, these days, I don't know. People, I guess, would know him from this episode, uh, maybe, at at least of a certain generation. But he he has a long history with Dickens himself in performances and things he's written and whatnot. So there was all that shorthand associating the actor with Dickens back in 2005. But I think by moving it to so late in his life, not only do you get this kind of interesting depth to him that isn't just a kind of... I think of how Shakespeare was depicted in series three, which I didn't really find any depth to that. It just really felt like a theme park version of Shakespeare to me. Let's have Shakespeare say a bunch of Shakespeare things. And, you know, look, it's it's crazy old Shakespeare. I didn't really feel like it. there was anything, there was much depth to the characterization or much revelatory material there. But here, I, Dickens has an arc in the episode. And in fact, Dickens is the key to the climax. He's the one who actually saves the day. He gets a lot to do. He has a progression over the course of the episode. I was so excited that you started with Dickens depleted. Mm. It was wonderful, that, because Dickens is always shown as the personification of energy, of Dickensian energy, and the truth is that for the last 20 years of his life, he was ill, Mm. struggling with this gout which he wouldn't acknowledge, Mm. and uh, was being killed by these performances that he was giving. And also, by moving it to the end of his life, you get the equivocation with Scrooge, uh, which Gatiss didn't actually intend at first. That just uh, organically grew out of 
um, moving it towards the end of his life and the kind of skeptical attitudes towards the supernatural uh, that he has earlier in the episode. I discovered something when it was finished, which I actually hadn't realized, that that there's a nice sort of Scrooge parallel. It's a sort of redemption of all of its own. Yeah. I can't claim it. I really realized it was happening. (laughs) I think it all came together um, with this kind of depleted vision of Dickens that they ended up employing. What do you guys think of how Dickens was done? I think it was good to get an early demonstration like this, that bringing a celebrity historical character into the show didn't necessarily mean just making them a cardboard cutout. You could have them actually talk about their deep anxieties and fears to the Doctor and have it be taken seriously have them actually be a real character and it's uh it ties together the the celebrity tour stuff with the the genre pastiche stuff because he dickens at this point in his life is sort of more of a dickens character well like you say he's sort of scroogey um so you get a lot um especially before dickens sort of comes into the plot you really get the sense that this is a dickens type story that he then turns up in. And so making it this tired, older version of him, which um, which won the actor over, um, makes it feel more like a Dickens story that also has Dickens in it, um, which which sort of lines up with all the, the Christmas Carol reading and then the, the knocker coming to life later. There's a fun little bit of metatextual stuff. Not as much as we would get in later stories, but a little bit. Yeah. There's something about how drained Dickens is in the story that just really appeals to me. I think it's it's not just that we kind of can launch him onto an arc. It's... Uh, he, he feels incomplete, I think, is what it is. In a story like the Shakespeare Code, Shakespeare doesn't feel incomplete to me. It's just kind of like we're in his world for an hour and then we leave. But in this, I feel like we enter into Dickens in a state where he's... He's not in a good way. He's he's drained. He's kind of lost. Uh, he's going on these reading tours that uh, we don't get all this from the episode. But why is he doing these? He's persisting on to make money, but it's the actor thinks it's a kind of fixation with the public that Dickens was still holding late in his life. But you can see how tired he is and how that early conversation he has in the like waiting room. Just how he's. It's Christmas time and he's not with his family. You know, he's, he's ruined from his own mistakes. He's, well, from his own actions, he's kind of torn apart all these relationships. And he's just in a very, he's in the kind of state of his life where the doctor can enter into. I know that uh, Gwen, in some ways, Gwyneth is more conceptualized as the would-be companion of the episode. But I think Diggins also is that in a lot of ways. He's the one who kind of the doctor barrels into the life of and kind of enlivens and helps, you know, fix up or galvanize in a way. And I think the Doctor and Rose's presence in this episode actually makes a lot of things worse. I know Gatiss himself actually questions, did they improve anything? Because it's only through the Doctor that Gwyneth learns that she is the one who can bring the Gelf through. They didn't know that beforehand. And that's kind of what sets off, you know, everything that happens in the third act. But he is a, it's an she interesting thing. That it's not often the Doctor kind of fails. In fact, someone said to me after they'd seen it that, if he hadn't arrived, it would have been fine. <laughs> true, because she didn't have the strength. She didn't know that she was the one who could let them in. Actually, the doctor messed it up. Oh dear. <laughs> but he's fallible, you know. He's only not human. <laughs> but with Dickens, I think the doctor, he improves the life of. And you can kind of question the, the, 
hmm, how to put this, the idea that we kind of sneak a bit of catharsis into the ending of a historical figure's life. I know some people find that lovely escapism and kind of respect to the figure, and some people find it kind of a kind of a toyetic vision of them. I think it's not always the same. I have different visions. I have different. I think it depends on the episode how they handle that. Um, I think in terms of the version of Dickens that we get, I think uh, what it is is that there's not really much point in taking a time machine that can go anywhere in time if you're just going to visit the version of history that we all already recognize and know from like all our cultural products. You might as well use it to see a different side to history or a specific person than the one we popularly recognize or remember. So it's just inherently a more interesting and intelligent choice to show one of these historical celebrities when they're not at their best or when they're not at their fullest or prime or whatever, when they're in the bit that maybe they wouldn't want everyone to see. And he's not even in in England. He's he's in Wales. You know, this isn't like where we think of him. This is just somewhere he'd go like during a reading tour. I, I, I just, I think it's, it feels like a window into his life rather than like a theme park conceptualization of his life, I think, which I, which really appeals to me. Yeah. Taking him out of London is, is such an interesting choice. Um, in sort of roughing up the story, giving it texture, that it's not just that cartoon version of Dickens. And that whole idea of it uh, not being the perfect remembered version of British history, and then sort of gets reinvigorated by Doctor Who. That um, I think that ties quite nicely with the, the main dramatic thrust of the episode between the Doctor and Rose, which is their disagreement over the sanctity of history. Yes. Um and and the the doctor's whole argument that history is just another place and we do here whatever it takes to to make things better and and your version of history isn't protected and sacred that balances really nicely against the the dickens who we don't remember this tired and sad dickens <laughs> that that's a really interesting link that's yeah so we know that charles dickens was one of the the bits, the building blocks of the story. As soon as RTD had his, you know, couple of sentence brief of it, uh, and one that Gatiss bristled at at first, but eventually bought into. When we think of a Gatiss episode, what sort of tone do we think of? Camp, romp. I think a romp. I think by and large, there are exceptions, of course, but you think of Robot of Sherwood, the Crimson Horror, uh, even a lot of aspects of the Idiot's Lantern. We think of a kind of fun, sort of silly Doctor Who episode. I think. Uh, Tom Tom puns and you know silly little jokes. Yeah, moustache twirling villains. Even if they don't have moustaches, very moustache twirling villains. That's the kind of stuff we think of. Even back in two thousand and four, this is what people I think kind of expected of Gatus. In a video diary he recorded after the first meeting of the writers all together, Gatus talks about how he realised everyone expects him to write something silly. I sort of took them through my ideas based on Russell's original outline of the story. Uh, so uh, what I'm sort of juggling with at the moment is the idea of the um, story of the maid and her dead brother. And I suppose giving it a more serious edge, the idea that she's um, eager for the dead to come back. And in fact, the aliens, which are the moment not necessarily power craze are just trying to survive their idea of um, 
housing themselves in the dead is, is not a bad notion as far as they're concerned, obviously, to humanity at large, it's beyond the pale. I suppose the only thing, the real danger at the moment is that I think everyone's expecting me to kind of produce a romp, you know, spooky, uh, definitely spooky, but, but mostly a romp. And, and funnily enough, the whole, all the themes of spiritualism and, and death and mourning in it um, I don't know, I somehow think it, against expectations it might sometimes be a bit more serious. He says his original first draft was really rather grim. Gwyneth had lost a little brother to diphtheria, the house was adjacent to the cemetery, and the boy comes back and taps on the window like Danny Glick in Salem's Lot. I remember having a script conference after the second draft, and Russell asking what the story was about, and I said, grief. As soon as the word tumbled out of my mouth, I thought, Ah, uh, yes, Saturday night. Wrong. <laughs> so he, it's, that's really fascinating to me that his first instinct with the story was something uncharacteristically serious and sad to the point of uh, almost reversing into camp by like how sad and dark it was. Why do you think he wrote it that way at first? I think he must have had a desire to take the job seriously of writing, you know, New Who's first historical or whatever, writing a writing for the revival of Doctor Who, and also wanting to take the subject matter, I guess, maybe the whole Dickens concept seriously. And uh, in the process, um, well, it's not that it's bad to write, to write a Doctor Who episode about grief or, you know, trauma or losing a child or whatever. We get episodes later in series one about these very topics. I think it's just that he... Maybe didn't want to feel like he was being typecast as the, the romp writer or whatever, who just writes silly, absurd comedy. I think, you know, he, he, has a, he has an interest in the gothic. And I think a lot of the gothic is like that, incredibly maudlin and sad and depressing. You know, I think he wanted to maybe show that he could do that. Yeah, I think, I think we've got to be careful not to uh, view 2004, when he was writing the episode, 2004 Gatiss with all the accumulated knowledge of what he became. I think, yeah, I think he really, I think he still does have a death fixation. You know, his favorite type of story has always been a ghost story and everything. But I think his instincts back here were interestingly miserable. I'm, I'm quite fascinated by that. I think a lot of that's down to the, the genre play as well. Um, how much uh, Dickens is about um, uh, class and the 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 impact of class on individuals who are crushed by that system. You get a lot of stuff with with the um, the the characters from the period about class that doesn't fit quite neatly into the episode and feels like it's there because Dickens stories are about these things. And so I, I feel like a lot of the 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 grimness, I suppose, is inherited through that. We're bringing in the social element, uh, something else really interesting in this first draft to do with the Gelf is that in, in, in the first draft, the Gelf weren't power crazy. Uh, they were just sincere survivors at that point. So the, <laughs> the conceptualization of the Gelf, which gets an interesting response and of course we'll dig into Lawrence Miles's response towards the end of this discussion that wasn't there from the start originally they were sincere and not hungry for power or whatever else they were trying to do in the episode we got and this idea of Gwen being eager for the dead to come back on account of a 
dead brother. That, that, that's very interesting. I wonder how Eve Mars would have played that. I'm curious to how the third act was would have gone in that first draft if the Gelf weren't sort of moustache twirling, sort of, ah, oh, let's kill everyone, evil kind of villains. Because uh, I, I mean, it just seems like it would have had to go in a bit of a different direction. The moral dilemma of the corpses, like Oliver talked about, was a Gatiss idea, it seems. The aliens needing the bodies was something he came up with, uh, needing the body as a vehicle. So that was his idea. Part of the brief was the idea of, of gas monsters. And, um, and the big leap I made was the idea that they needed a vehicle to house themselves. They were disembodied. And then suddenly there was the possibility of a moral dilemma because absolutely the world is full of useless corpses and they're saying can we have them please doctor doctor says yes the companion says no and uh i thought that was very interesting and then an abandoned idea he had when he was musing on the nature of them being gas was that what if the climax is them liquefying the gelf what if somehow there's a chemical reaction and we turn them into liquids and that's how the day is solved when you remove the carbon dioxide of other properties from it it becomes a liquid so I thought maybe that's the way to defeat them, liquefy them, bottle them up, chuck them away, <laughs> put them in the fridge. And then th- these video diaries covering his drafting process are really interesting because he, he kind of loses himself, I think, at a point. He starts fixating on all sorts of things and babbling about uh, solid to liquid to gas kind of stuff as he's trying to work out how to make a better climax. Anyway, at one point, he gets a bit forlorn and worried that he thinks his drafts are falling into the classic Doctor Companion relationship and that he keeps rereading RTD's Rose script to try and snap himself out of uh, that relationship. It's frustrating, frustrating process. I can't seem to do do it at the moment. I'm going to go for a walk now, try and blow some cobwebs away and have a think the heart of it. I probably need to read Russell's script again to get more of the flavour of the new approach. I think what's happening is I'm it's becoming too traditional, Doctor-Companion relationship. And not that I don't want to, you know, destroy all that, but... Yeah, difficult. Very difficult. And another early relic... So, Mr. Sneed wasn't always old in these drafts. Earlier on, he was much younger, and the actor they wanted for Mr. Sneed was none other than our 14th Doctor actor, uh, David Tennant. Oh, wow. <laughs> that would have been a, a, a true alternate history in the way that uh, the Doctor suggests, uh, what if, you know, the future's all full of zombies because uh, what if this, we get the bad ending to this episode instead? You know, they were going to film that? Yeah, they were going to film that. Russell wanted a, a little scene where they actually go forward into the future because she says this didn't happen because there weren't zombies in 1869. And he actually shows her originally what the world would be like and it's just massively overrun with the dead. Couldn't do that. (laughs) That's when they stopped saying spend more money. (laughs) Well, Gatiss talks about initially, and I know uh, Moffat got this talk as well, you know, when the earliest scripts were coming in that RTD and the execs were saying, spend more money. You guys are writing too small. You know, we've got the money. Make this bigger. And for Gatiss, that was expanding out the scene where uh, Rose and the Doctor walk out onto Cardiff and there's snow everywhere and, you know, there's scores of extras and everything. And for Moffat, of course, it was the uh, the 
rose hanging from the sky during the Blitz scene. And now th this exterior was, was shot in Swansea because most of Cardiff, in fact, was modern-day Cardiff was built in 1905, so we, we couldn't find the square which... Which was right. Which was right, yeah. I remember a, a, a production meeting after I'd done a couple of drafts where some a sentence was uttered which had never been said in Doctor Who's history and never will be again, spend more money. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to write it, open it out into a big street suit. But the money couldn't stretch far enough to a kind of Pyramid of Mars type, let's run to the future and, you know, there's zombies everywhere in 2005 and then let's run back to avert it. And also... Just structurally, I can't see any way that can work while while maintaining the tension of the third act. Interesting idea. I, I also think it's just so much more evocative keeping it in the drama between the two of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the 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 Doctor being it's it's such a pitch perfect characterization of of the Doctor and of Nine in particular of this totally alien perspective that is also deeply humanitarian uh, and and right basically and the fact that 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 progressive thought might be alienating to to a companion from the modern day is a just fantastic source of tension between those characters i also think it's actually scarier to just have the doctor tell rose that you know, your future could be gone like that it can be overwritten you're not safe i agree yeah. than actually just making a point of going go having them look on a screen seeing lots of zombies wandering around i mean that just that just demystifies it just demystifies it, doesn't it? Uh, well, speaking of the demystifying and different conceptions of the supernatural, uh, when David Tennant's Sneed, the younger Sneed, uh, was thought up of in the earlier drafts, the idea was that Sneed and his wife, Mrs. Sneed, were in a spiritual hotel, as they were called. So it's like on all different floors, there will be different mediums and you go to whatever medium you wanted. And Sneed would be the real medium uh, who, unbeknownst to him, is he's communicating with the Gelf. And all the other mediums are actual fakes. And originally, there was a greater part for one of the fakes and everything. But Gatiss, I get the impression this is when the script really locked into play for him, was when he switched, he got rid of all that spiritual hotel idea. He got rid of Sneed as the young David Tennant medium. And he got the idea of setting it in a funeral parlor instead. Very funny idea, change of direction to open it out a bit and uh, to get away from the house is to set it in a funeral parlour uh, and have the Gelf already coming through Gwyneth, although she doesn't know it, and uh, sort of experimenting on various members of the dead so that the undertaker and his wife, Mr. and Mrs. Sneed, as they're now going to be, are much more... It's actually a sort of professional embarrassment that they can't keep the dead down. Uh, and I can see lots of scenes immediately very exciting and funny. The undertaker comes in and unexpectedly um, rolls his eyes and shouts, Gwyneth, get your bloody bones down here, we've got another one. So it was hard in that sort of context to then, as it were, rescue a lot of the grimness. And now, I mean, that's what Russell wanted because uh, he thought it was just becoming too grim and it was in danger of being a play for today rather than Doctor Who, which is absolutely true, I think. Um, it's just a, a process and it's difficult. It becomes difficult to hang on to things you really treasure because they simply don't work anymore. So I wrote a whole draft um, with Mr. and Mrs. Sneed and then realised that Mrs. Sneed was superfluous because the heart of the story is still Gwyneth and Gwyneth's powers. 
you know, when you talk about um, David Tennant being the youngest need, it reminds me of something I thought watching the very early scenes of this episode um, in, uh, I guess, as preparation for this uh, discussion. And when um, the oldest need that we get um, talks to Gwyneth about how they need to go and chase after the zombie grandma and he says, hey, we're going body snatching, come with me. You know, I got the faintest sense that... Um, of something happening that you'd occasionally get in old Robert Holmes stories in Classic Who, where you have two characters who almost feel like a bit like a cracked mirror of the Doctor and Companion. Yes. I don't know if you'd see what I... Yeah, so it's almost like Sneed is one of those sort of warped Doctor figures, kind of, and, Gwen, and Gwyneth is his companion, in a way. So that would have been even more pronounced if David Tennant happened to be playing him. But um, And Gwyneth and Rose obviously get very directly paralleled. Yeah. Yeah. through the whole story there's what's that line uh there has to be more in your life than mr sneed i think that scene absolutely is uh paralleling the two of them yeah absolutely it's also the, the parallels between rose um with with a doctor an older man and, and gwyneth with sneed the yes. older man and, uh-huh. i used to go around the shops with my mate sharif <laughs> she tells him oh you, you need more in your life than old sneed she mm. tells him and this story i think uh, maybe, maybe it's might even be the first series one episode to seriously do this. Is the one that I think suggests a how to phrase this companionship, a uh, a, a deeper, can a possibly romantic, and if not romantic, at least a kind of uh, very powerful connection between Rose and the Doctor. Because we have that great scene when they're in the TARDIS at the start of the episode, where they're kind of discussing what this shared life is, what the Doctor's life is, and Billy's playing it as if she's just completely enamored uh, with the ninth doctor i think you're looking at her eyes and how she's looking at them and they have that exchange not a bad life is it uh better with two i think this is the first episode that i think it raises the romantic with the sexual tension between the characters or at least that there's a kind of companionship connection in there that's going a bit beyond the classic who kind of conception of the doctor and companion in that scene as well there's there's just a hint of rose being I guess platonically in love with the Doctor. Mm. There's, mm. there's his man. She's enamoured by his magic and and completely drawn in by it. That opening scene on the TARDIS with the two of them is fantastic. Mm. Um, it's so you can you can tell. I think that Gaddis really read RTD's earlier scripts closely because there's so much newness in their relationship and the fact that you would land and have a proper conversation about the place you're going to and what it means for you personally that that's a very modern series feeling beat um and it really works i think billy piper's fantastic in this gatus was positively obsessed with the kind of viewer insertion of Rose's first time going into the past. This is something through all his drafts and through all these videos of him making the episode he talks about so much is that scene where we first see her foot touch the snow. He was yes, really, uh. he was super fixated on this idea of we have to get the companion, we have to really get in their heads and see the magic of what Doctor Who is, the magic of time travel and the magic of going to the past. And I get a real sense that this is Gatiss channeling his own, you know, multi-decade love of the show and, you know, connection with the show that, you know, we as fans have of the the escapism and just the sheer enveloping kind of joy of the idea of time travel. What if you could go somewhere else? I think it's actually one of the best episodes to embody that. It's not the longest scene in the world, that scene in the TARDIS and then the first entrance out into snowy Cardiff. But I think the script nails it. And I think Eurus Lynn did a really good job 
of how 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 he how he did it on camera and everything. I just think it's a truly magical moment in series one. I was this is something I was very keen to do. The first time I had a meeting with Russell about this was something I loved as a child about the idea of Doctor Who was how magical it would be if you really could travel in time. I used to used to sort of thing I I play as a child was the idea of opening a door and it was different and and I really wanted this notion of how how fantastic it is the doctor can just do what no one else can which is why when she finally opens the door and puts the footprint in it was that kind of thing yeah i originally actually wanted the snow to drift inside to expect <laughs> <laughs> i think the series really did nail the kind of magic of going to the past in doctor who and i i always prefer the episodes that go to the past and the ones in the future and i think Maybe this imprinted on me when I was young, the way this episode did it. I think it's really fantastic how the, I think the passion is clear, basically, in Rose's and Gatiss' conception of Rose's first trip to the past. I think it's quite wonderfully done. I think um, small nuances, like that moment when she looks at her footprint in the snow, I, I, they're the kind of things that um, certain eras later on maybe did not <laughs> uh, put as much stock in, but they're really important. Like, they're just incredibly important to have small moments like that because they i think they pretty much make the entire show yeah to be honest if you strip them out you've just got a skeleton um what i was gonna say earlier is that in series one i mean practically every episode has some sort of key role whereas in this one it's not quite as obvious but i think the actual the real um something really important because we were talking about rose and the doctor's relationship earlier is that it's i guess it's the first moment where um for example, in the third act, when they're going to get killed by the zombies, Nine and, Nine and Rose sort of look at each other, and he admits that, I'm so glad I met you. And she's like, hey, yeah, me too. And and they, they hold hands and stuff. It's like the the first time in the course of series one where they really, um, I guess, <laughs> I guess they really properly sort of openly admit and confess to what that bond is and how how much they really, really like each other. Like not just hey, it'd be cool to hang out, but in the sense that they're really uh, they feel committed to each other. They actually openly are just ready to say that they've been positive effect on the other person's life. If you see what I mean, so it feels really central to series one, even if it's not a huge plot uh, mover. If you see what I mean. End of the world is very ambiguous uh, on that beat. It presents the danger and the deep sadness of the future. And ends with, look, I, I don't know if it's okay. I don't know how I feel about it, but let's get chips and talk about it. Um, and so this episode being the actual passing of that threshold, and Rose going, look, I'm going to die in the past, and you know what, it was worth it, sets her, locks her into position for the rest of the series. And and to be honest, everything that comes in series two is seeded from that moment she goes yeah it's okay if i die here because it was it was worth it before i say the thing i actually want to say this this might blow your minds because it absolutely it it i i i never would have believed this if i hadn't seen it with my own eyes the rift the cardiff rift is such an engine of new who even beyond the russell well actually no it's closed up by miracle day isn't it the the cardiff rift is such an engine of the whole ITD empire. Uh, it, it basically sets up Torchwood and it sets up a lot just on in New Who itself. And it's just an utterly fantastic idea, isn't it? So you assume RTD came up with it, wouldn't you? I mean, it's in Cardiff and everything. 
Uh, no, Gators came up with that in his drafts when he was trying to plot out a better way to make the Gelf work within the episode. He kept trying to narrow down, how can I explain why the Gelf need the bodies and why this... He was trying to get all the mechanics down as he was trying to fit everything into a 45-minute format, which he found difficult. And the Cardiff Rift was part of that idea eventually had. We had a lot of discussions about... It was, this was a very tough thing, actually, to simplify what the Gelf were after. That's where the rift came from, because it was this whole nature of a sort of weak point in time and space. And and then, why do they want to inhabit... They're made of gas. Why do they need the bodies? Um, can't they just float around? They, no, the atmosphere is unsuitable. So there was an awful lot of discussions about just trying to make that totally obvious. Yeah. In fact, the, the, one of the curious things is... I think I said to Russell uh, a few months ago that if in the if I'd written in the first draft that the doctor says they're made of gas as he does almost immediately, mm. you'd think, oh, it's so bold. Actually, you need it in forty-five mm. minutes. You just mm. haven't got the time. That's what I discovered. Really. When he developed that, uh, you know, something Russell said was, "I was certain I could use that again." Uh, and as he told a contemporary issue of Doctor Who magazine, "But you'll just have to watch to see what happens and if Cardiff survives." Uh, so that's can you believe that RTD didn't come didn't he didn't come up with a rift it was Gators I I had read that it was um his decision to streamline the whole medium logic um but weird that RTD didn't really have an input um because Boomtown is built around it the rift as an idea as it pops up in this episode it's kind of just it's sort of a it's a it's a hand wavy plot point okay there's a rift here it just is but i can completely see how rtd would pick up on that and turn it into this whole i guess cardiff based fountain of wonders that he can use for all kinds of things so maybe it's mildly surprising that it didn't come directly from him but it doesn't actually surprise me that much that he was able to latch onto that and make it as big a thing as he did so even if the initial spark of inspiration came from elsewhere you know, it still feels very much, um, it feels like RTD's baby. Like he made it into this whole thing. Like he, he grew it out from this initial seed. So if you were talking of RTD taking other writers' ideas and improving them, uh, <laughs> well, there's a figure we're going to talk about towards the end of this discussion who, you know, some people say uh, came up with an idea which might have been the whole engine for New Who in general. Did RTD improve the Time War idea? You know, that's that's a whole conversation of its own. Uh, but how I actually wanted to respond to bringing up, Gig brought up how other eras handle things differently. And we were talking about the function of episode three. And I can let's combine these two things because in May 2018, which was, of course, in the now finished Chibnall era, I was actually before it started because, you know, Woman Who Felt Earth began in October, but this is after Twice Upon a Time. So we're in the Chibnall era. In this May 2018 issue of Doctor Who magazine, Russell T. Davies comes back uh, to do a little production notes where he talks mostly about The Unquiet Dead and kind of about its function as an episode. I think it's really interesting. And also, as I was doing my research for this and I came across this production notes, uh, this has just aged beautifully, this one. So I'm going to read a bit of it out. So RTD's production notes, May 2018. What? What? Doctor Who wants me back? I knew it. I knew it. Falling apart without me. Oh, it was only a matter of time. I've sat here and waited. I've done nothing else. And boy, oh boy, I've got plans. Big plans. I'm bringing back Gadget and... What? <laughs> oh, Doctor Who magazine wants me back. Okay. 
Hello, faithful reader. It actually went like this. Chris Chibnall said to me, it's 13 years since Rose and the 13th Doctor is coming. So, you know, 13, that's the link. Off you go. And so, RTD just faffs around for a bit talking about, oh, it's lovely to be, you know, writing more, blah, blah, blah. Then he says, gosh, 2005 was terrifying. For me, the most significant moment was the Sunday morning after The Unquiet Dead. Uh, also, a little sidebar, The Unquiet Dead, uh, that title comes from Gatiss really, really early on. Uh, Philip, uh, Phil Collinson, the other one of the three big producers of the RTD era said, this was Mark's chosen title right from the very first draft. And from the first moment he said it aloud, we all said, yes, it sums up perfectly the scares and horror Mark has in store. They actually flip-flopped. Mm, flip-flop, there's foreshadowing. They actually flip-flopped over the title heaps uh, later on. But it did come from Gators very early on. The Crippingwell Horror was one of them, which sounds much more later Gatis. It does. I'm glad they went back to The Unquiet Dead. I think it's a yeah, much better. great title. Anyway, back to May 2018, Russell T. Davies. Uh, so he was very scared after The Unquiet Dead because we transmitted Rose, 10.8 million viewers, great, but only to be expected when so many buildings had been posted with Chris and Billy's faces that my own front door had been papered over. Then week two, the end of the world, down to 7.9 million, absolutely expected. That's what episode twos do. So then the crucial question Will that slide continue? Down to five, down to three, down to death? The entire future of Doctor Who pivoted around that week. I wondered if the audience would run away because I think the end of the world is the riskiest episode ever made. And he goes into his reasons for that a little bit. But had we pushed people away? On Saturday, 9th of April, 2005, I watched the unquiet deads, ghosts and zombies rising from the grave and it felt a bit too symbolic. I thought, this is it. Life or death, on this night the Doctor stands or falls. And on Sunday morning, 10th of April, the figures came in. 8.8 million, we went up, up. Impossible again, well played Mark Gatiss. And here we are, ever since that day, the Gelf inheritance. So he thought it was make or break time. Basically episode three uh, for the show. And the fact that Gatiss got an episode that made the ratings go up uh, made him feel very secure. What an interesting alternate history it would have been if the ratings had fallen instead with the unquiet dead who imagine if series one had created that would be like the zombie vision of future cardiff be a very different world indeed interesting accidental symbolism he brings up there with the 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 unquiet dead literally being doctor who the show back from the dead (laughs) perhaps being unquiet in its own way i remember reading that at the time and thinking that uh as much as he's celebrating the unquiet dead there the actual viewing figures of that episode overnight are not actually particularly hingent on its quality it's more that people um wanted to come back after end of the world um but i i suppose in the same way that it represents a sort of uh, threshold with the doctor companion relationship it's the as the first story written by somebody else and the first sort of just standalone here's how new doctor who can work in an episode it was again a threshold for the series going does it work outside the opening does a normal episode of doctor who get viewers in 2005 and it turned out it did yeah this this is kind of well no this this is related to how the show was conceived in 2005 one of the differences there is that this was a scene i really loved as a kid as well back to that first tyler scene in the episode that's a real that's a real romp isn't it the travel it's rough the camera is flying around and Eurus Lin was quite 
nervous about what he was doing there. <laughs> it's a very wobbly kind of framing that he's doing there. It's not normal how he's filming that. And it's it's like a roller coaster. It's a real adventure how everything's flinging around there. We were very nervous about um, shooting this scene quite so wobbly vision as yeah. we have. Um, so we went for a very handheld, lively, yeah. the TARDIS fo- is falling apart kind of feel to it, and, which is not very Saturday night, really. Well, Russell did say to me he wanted he, he wanted travel in the TARDIS to be much more dangerous than it appeared. It was previously a sort of very... Stately. A sort of stately, almost arid kind of whiteness. Yeah. And he liked to go with the whole look of the TARDIS, the, the steam and the, and the just things coming off. And it was actually yeah. always going to be a risky venture, which I thought was wonderful. And Gator says that's one of the things RTD was really pushing on the riders, was make the travel feel exciting and like an adventure and like the doctor's barely in control especially for the past since this is the first episode going back to the past and it's it needs to feel different and kind of dangerous so i'm thinking i'm planning the idea of maybe starting the whole episode with the tardis scene russell's very keen to have journeys in the tardis now much more dangerous the, the floor plates lifting so it's just the doctor's barely in control of it so this is their first journey into the past and wants to make more of it. And that way, which kind of gets back to my original idea about it, you won't see anything of 1860 until it's through Rose's eyes. So the first thing you see of it will be the TARDIS doors opening onto that snowy garden at night and all the wonder of that, followed by straight into the seance and then the Gelf arriving on that. Uh, what do you guys think of how that was done? It's also the first time uh, in the new series that the TARDIS doesn't go where it's meant to, um, which is part and parcel of that, right? Um, uh, the Doctor's not in control. Whoops, we miss the year. And whoops, more importantly, we're in Cardiff. You know, it's it's a very small thing uh, materially, you know, having the camera shake around a lot during the TARDIS uh, trip scenes rather than just be silent and still like you might get in uh, Classic Who. But it, it does make quite a big difference, doesn't it? Just to the tone of the whole show. Just starting in a, in a place of frenetic uh, mayhem rather than stoic <laughs> emotionlessness. I, it, it, I think it just really conveys the character of New Who compared to Classic. I think it really, really links into the kind of the, the magic of time travel stuff, almost the Narnia-esque thing of the, you know, the TARDIS as the doorway into the fantastic new world. I think it's, 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 it's part and parcel with that, isn't it? That it needs to feel like a journey, like you've gone on this magnificent magical thing needs to have happened. You need to have sailed. I love how we use the, the opening titles, Time Vortex, how it's like diegetic with the show. I love that. Mm. that we, we actually cut to, the opening titles, basically, I, I just—it feels like such a magical journey to me. It, 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 I was spellbound by all that stuff as a kid. It was just—it's so imagination-stoking. I think that it's not just we flick a switch, you know, like how others, some other sci-fi might do it. We don't just flick a switch and then we're we walk out and we're in another realm or we're in another time. It's difficult and we have to barrel through this crazy vortex and it's so cheesy. But you know, in the opening titles, when we like pause. And the TARDIS does this epic, like, spin around in the RTD ones. And then we venture on forwards. Like, it's it's so ridiculous, but it's so fun. And it feels like an actual journey. I think this episode does a great job of this fantastical... We're, we're going on a big journey. This is kind of the romp element, I think. This is what's so fun, is that we're going somewhere else and it's dangerous, but we get there and it's a totally new world. It's just very captivating. 
perfect moment that encapsulates that is um, when the Doctor and Rose get there, they're walking around, and then they hear screams coming, and Nine, he's holding his newspaper, he immediately throws it away and says, that's more like it, and he runs off in the directions of the screams. Like that, That's just a wonderful moment of characterization for him, isn't it? Because, I mean, it's both funny, but also just... Uh, and it has, it has that element of black comedy because he's, like, thrilled by the thought of people in danger and horror and screaming, but also just wonderfully captures the thrill-seeking nature of the show, and it's just easy to get... It's, it invites the viewer in, I think, it, it, to to join in with the fun and the excitement and the adventure. It's a very relatable moment. I, I, a classic series one thing is that scene greater as... Well, you're, sing, you're singling out Eccleston's performance there and uh, director Eurus Lin was panicking filming all that whole sequence because it's, it's difficult to phrase this without just using his words. He's not insulting the actors when he says this, but he was panicking that he wasn't getting the best performances out of the actors that he could. What skipper this was the snow took an hour and a half longer to lay than we'd planned so from the very beginning of that night we knew that we were up against it not only were they running against the clock they were battling against the elements there was a wind kind of howling um, and, and the snow is actually made of paper so it kind of gusts it up into the air and the horses were terrified so it was a very difficult environment to work in and I was panicking that I didn't have the performances that I'd wanted from these artists. It's still this adventure of showing her this, this the wonderful place, this, you know, the So we'll have a couple of beats of that before the reaction to... Steph, Steph, exactly, come in. Yeah. Thank goodness when I came back into the edit suite, I, I was kind of delighted. I, 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 I'd kind of panicked unnecessarily. It's not, not as bad as the first, you know, episodes getting filmed of New Who, but it's that classic series one thing of they... These episodes turned out really, really, really well, uh, but everyone was panicking and not thinking this was going well uh, behind the scenes. And in fact, Russell himself, <laughs> well, he swanned out of Swansea because they, they ended up filming this in Swansea because Cardiff didn't have the buildings that looked old enough for what they were trying to do. Uh, he checked out the production for a bit and then he just left because he said, hey, I'm the exec producer, I'm the showrunner, not the producer. I don't have to deal with the logistics here. I can just check it out. This is when I'm glad I'm not an actual producer, as in I'm an executive producer, and it's time Phil is the producer, and that's hard work. On a night like this, when it is, the wind is blowing and the snow's not putting down and we're late, that's when being a producer is a nightmare, because you're just looking at your watch and looking at money, and that's where I can swan off. At midnight, I'm off. It's like they're here till four in the morning, and I'm gonna go, yeah, thank you, bye. It's always very complicated, but it's doubly so tonight, because we've got special effects, we've got horses and carriages, we've got something like 70 extras all in period dress this evening as well, and so it's an enormous thing to coordinate. Terrifying. Here we go, stand by then, and action! Uh, but it came out beautifully, like we all said, you know, Eccleston's performance in that scene is great, it, it, it all really works. It's, and I think you can kind of feel the money of New Who in that scene, because it, it's quite immersive, isn't it? They're actually on a big street, and there actually are a lot of people, and there actually are horses, and well, it looks like snow. You know, there's, there's something flying around. Um, it really invites you in, I think. None of the behind-the-scenes chaos makes it onto the screen. Yeah. Which is not something you can say about every Doctor Who episode. <laughs> so uh, it's a real virtue in this case. I was going to say before that the choice to spend the money that might have been spent on a zombie future instead just fleshing out the the world of the past and yes. making that, that immediate landscape of that street just real feeling totally the right call 
Because the fact that they, and I think this is almost all in the direction, which I think is pretty phenomenal. That, but they step out and it feels like a real world. It does. And it would be very easy not to. And often in Doc 2, it doesn't feel like a real world. But it, I don't know, 60s magic, maybe in the 60s, I've, I've, I've got rose tinted glasses on, but it feels a piece of that where the, the worlds they're stepping into already exist. Which is the same thing with Dickens. Dickens is aged and tired because he's an already existing yeah. human being in an existing world. And using the budget to reinforce that is so much better than whatever sci-fi nonsense. You're so right. That's actually quite holistic, isn't it? It's the characterization mm. of Dickens ties into the realization of Cardiff. It all it all feels pre-existing. You're so right. That's a that's a really well articulated uh, way to say it. Yeah, that's. Um, I think yeah, it, immersive is the word I keep coming back to. It feels like we've entered in a world that exists without us, which is what you want. I think this is part of why End of the World and this back-to-back work so well, is that End of the World, they spent a lot of money on all the prosthetics for the aliens that you can feel physically are there. You know, the mocks of Balhoon and uh, Captain Jack and the uh, the adherence of the repeated meme, they're all there and they're physically in the scene. I mean, we've got the CGI spider and everything, but you can you can feel this, the, the trees. There's all these aliens actually there, and it feels like we've entered a big new kind of landscape and uh, setting for the show. There's just so much there. Then all the VFX spent on the, you know, dying earth and the sun and everything. I think that, and then it feels like the opposite in this episode, but it's actually very similar to me that they spend all the money on realizing, you know, this is an actual setting we're in and it exists without us and there's all the horses and there's all the snow. I think back to back, you actually get the sense of this is real. We can actually travel anywhere and there, there, there are actual worlds to visit. You know, we're not cutting corners. You know, we're not doing bottle episodes. We're actually off. This is a time machine and we're doing the magical thing of visiting different places. I think the, the second or the third episode of series one pulled that off really fantastically. And something I sort of wanted to touch on earlier regarding the rift is that that's sort of what series one is all about. The big thing that series, what people talk about bad wolf all the time. It's nothing. It's, it's barely in the series. It's, it's a fun little joke. The real thing that series one is doing is that it's set in one world and the things characters do have lasting impact on the world of the story. Even if you're pinging from anthology episode in uh, different time zones and different places in Earth's orbit, it's still constantly you're seeing the repercussions of things that were done earlier. You've got the big moment about Bad Wolf Station being the 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 same satellite. Satellite 5? Yeah. Um, uh, but you've also got the Rift. Um, you've got the, the Slovene. All these little things that are seeded earlier in the world, some impact the characters have in a story early on, pays off later. That sort of... The leaving footprints. It's leaving footprints in the snow. Yeah. Um, and again, that's so much of what this story's about. The, the, the Doctor talking about how time isn't a precious fixed thing. The things that we do will have consequences. That's the really interesting thing Series 1's doing, and it's part of what really really works in this episode it's yeah it's i i couldn't agree more it's why to me series eight not any of the other russell series but it was series eight where Mm. i first felt that so much of what had alighted me you know as an 11 year old watching series one was back in 2014 
because it, it wasn't the specifics of how Russell ran the show. It was this interconnectivity and this almost novelistic isn't the right word, but the feeling that this season is a complete unit and it's not arbitrary what episodes are in it. They all link together deeply. You know, in series eight, you, uh, how many episodes of soldiers and then cyborgs and, you know, some permutation right. of that. And it's just so, there's so much thematic connectivity and character through lines are so consistent throughout each episode to episode. Uh, both series have the rare the um, <laughs> both series have a very good Gators episode, which is always nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's. I think there's a lot of. It's in my mind, series one and series eight. Although they're hugely different in so many ways, they have this real connection to me. In exactly as Oliver just put it, this interconnectivity and the consequences across episodes. Um, it just it, it enthralls me that kind of thing. When a season feels like an actual really linked cohesive unit it just makes me extraordinarily happy and i think both series do it really really well with the bad wolf meta arc thing you just mentioned something you'll like i don't know if either of you have heard this on the on the commentary about 25 minutes into it i don't know when the commentary was recorded but gators uh, starts spitballing about about what bad wolf means as simon keller is like <laughs> being inquisitive about it now there's something here which i'm not privy to it's only season one she mentions the big bad wolf which is an ongoing thing in the series gets sprayed on the side of the tardis bad wolf it's something that's going to be paid off what do you think it is well all I, it, ridiculously i sit there like a lemon and only watching it the other week that i suddenly realized of course who's afraid of the big bad wolf. The Doctor is afraid of whatever. I presume it's what wiped out the Time Lords. I do know what that was. <laughs> do you know? I bet you know. I'm guessing. Oh, maybe we shouldn't say on this. <laughs> How do you- I, I just think it's marvellous that you've got a writer on the commentary that doesn't know uh, what happens in the finale. And Eurus Lynn actually gets quite tight-lipped when Gatus asks, do you know what it's about? And he, he doesn't really go into it. Um, but I thought that was very interesting. Obviously, Russell's bringing it all together and it's mostly his editing hand that's drawing all these things together but the fact that say Gattis invents the rift and then russell ties that into everything else um i i think that's an extremely neat collaborative version of doc 2 that gets you the standalone episodes that work by themselves that also feed into each other yeah in interesting ways series one is full of that i think how captain jack came together as well it's such a moffat character in so many ways but then of course we think of it more as rtds because of how much he uses that character in later stuff and how much he connected into you know the kind of characterization that moffat had came up with him for it i think series one is full of rtd kind of enabling these other writers to put their own styles into it and then him you know gleefully using that really well across the years to come really productive series i meant to check and didn't so sorry but is this the first time rose talks about her dad yeah because she has a proper conversation about it with Gwyneth. Um, and obviously, again, this is the first historical episode. So uh, all those ideas that come up in Father's Day are beginning to coalesce here. Uh, I, I, I think about the fact that, uh, according to Russell, I, the big disagreement between Russell and Billy Piper and that Billy Piper thinks that the decision in Father's Day to try to change history was just a spur of the moment. She couldn't watch it happen again. And Russell thinks she was planning it for some time. But you can definitely see the seeds of it here as she's uh, sort of jostling with the Doctor over over how history works and what their role in it is. And to get that linking already to her dad, 
wonderful long form character stuff really great apparently that scene where rose talks to gwyneth was a later edition by russell to, to the script yeah ah, that makes sense there's like so the episode underran which happened with a lot of series one episodes uh and so eve miles was really popular with everyone because she's fantastic she did such she did, she did such a great job she was also on hand in some of episode two's recordings uh to read in for cassandra on the days so everyone loved her uh and so when they had to extend the episode to meet the runtime uh russell extended the sequence where gwyneth talks to rose and mentions the big bad wolf uh i don't want to totally discount gaitis's contributions there as well because he talks quite passionately in some videos about a lot of the ideas that are going on in that whole conversation because there's a lot of aspects to that conversation there's the stuff about the kind of vision of modernity that rankles Gwen, uh, which I think Gators seems really, really into. And <laughs> it sounds oddly accusatory, doesn't it? That Gators is really into this stuff, you know, saying Victoriana is great, modernity is bad. I don't, I don't really mean it like that, but he, he's, he's very, he talks a lot about that, basically that sequence. What I really like about the character is actually she's not yearning to, to, uh, to be a modern girl. She doesn't know what the concept is, you know. Uh, she's, she's paid eight pounds a year and would be happy with six. You don't understand what's going on. You would say that, miss, because that's very clear inside your head that you think I'm stupid. And she, she meets Rose, who kind of thinks that she will emancipate her. And in the end, actually, she's patronising her. Things might be very different where you're from, but here and now, I know my own mind. And the angels need me. It's too easy a trap to fall into that, that, uh, that everywhere the Doctor and Rose go, there is someone who, who could easily become a companion. Do you know what I mean? They've got modern attitudes. In fact, not. They're very much shaped by their circumstances. I, I do think, just, just on that, um, I, I think that sequence is played really well. And I think that it comes out in Rose's favour. It, it ends on a note of her being, you know, arrogant about her her modern perspective and thinking uh, Gwyneth is stupid in comparison. But they find much more in common over the, I know, talking about boys, looking at their bums and stuff. They really bond over that. And there's there's a heavy emphasis on the idea that they're, they're the same sort of person at different points in time and that modernity and Victoriana aren't actually distinct, but, you know, interconnected with sharing sharing features between them. I want I want to I want to I want to get this in quickly because this might be relevant to gig. Uh I want to talk more about the modernity stuff in a second, but just to connect back to what gig was raising with how did this scene develop and what did Russell add to it? Uh something from the complete history book is that I'll, no, I'll read out this whole thing, although it connects to the stuff I just read out for the inside story. Anyway, it says Russell T Davies wrote new material on Tuesday 12th of October focusing on Gwyneth as he had been impressed with Eve Miles. That's connecting to the thing I just read out earlier. An extra scene between Sneed and, Gw- and Gwyneth was added in Sneed's kitchen, where the undertaker declares that they are going out after the old lady. Dickens listening to the gas pipes at Sneed's was changed, and the scene between Rose and Gwyneth in Sneed's kitchen was substantially expanded, adding material about Rose's father to lead into episode 8, which would form part of the next production block, Russell now also inserted references to the phrase bad wolf in his scripts as a running thread, picking up on some graffiti seen in episodes four and five. When Julie Gardner noticed this and asked Russell if he was planning to pay off these comments at a later point, 
possibly in the following series, her fellow executive Russell was undecided. Uh, but yeah, there's so Russell adding the expanded material about Rose's father and the bad wolf stuff. Yeah, absolutely. See, um, what leapt out to me about the whole scene where they're talking about modernity and stuff is that having, when you think about it, because this is the first, the first historical in New Who, and this is the first um, companion talks to someone from history for for an extended period of time in New Who. This is the first time they do that in the revival, and they have the choice to unexpectedly, I think. Have it be based around Rose being probed, well, psychically, by this character who happens to be a psychic, instead of the other way around. So rather than Rose learning about the past in lots of ways necessarily, it's the complete inversion of that, whereas character from the past inadvertently learns things about what the future is like. And it makes things scarier, I think, because it makes the scene quite uh, almost unpredictable and kind of anxiety-inducing in a way, because all of a sudden Rose is the one in the spotlight. Well, rather than the tourist absorb, absor- observing other people, if you see what I mean. So I always thought, I thought that was really quite a clever inversion of how that scene might have otherwise gone. I love how the actors played as well. The way that Eve is kind of carrying through that f- disgust, that fear of modern London and how Billy's playing being freaked out by it. It's quite scary. Uh, they, they play it really well. And just even the language that I suppose RTD is writing there. Uh, how he's describing modern London and the way Eve is performing. It's just fabulous, isn't it? It really does sound disgusting and terrifying. The line that buried deep in my subconscious is, and there's birds, but the birds are metal too. Yes. Great. And so haunting. She plays it. I'm not a fan of um, mediums and possession. Generically, it it irks me. I find it's often not very characterful, but... Between the writing and Eve Miles' performance, she you don't get the impression that she's just all spooky reading thoughts. She, as a person, is haunted by the future here. She's scared, properly, characterfully scared of a scary world that's just around the corner. Really cool. That idea of the future uh, invading the past um, and information about the future being given to women from the past again comes up in um, the Doctor Dances. That whole the two-way street of time travel and uh, sharing information about where we end up and how that's frightening or reaffirming um, is so a thing that Series One is doing for sure. It just occurred to me, you know, we're we're splitting hairs about well, who wrote what in that scene and where idea what ideas come out of where, uh, but this isn't the only scene where this kind of dynamic between Rose and Gwyneth of the kind of patronising and competing views of modernity versus Victoriana comes up because there's at least one other scene where, you know, Eve Mars, I know you think I'm stupid, you know, Rose, but blah, blah, blah. I'm actually, I, you know, respect me a little bit. Uh, so I guess it's possible that Russell maybe wrote all the dialogue there, but there was some, some of that dynamic was still embodied in whatever earlier version of, that scene or earlier exchange was because it is it does come up later in the episode as well uh anyway i guess the reason i think that is because gators talks quite at length about that dynamic in one of the featurettes and I, I think what he says is quite interesting he's got a few points here what really interests him is not doing the dynamic where the modern person knows best because they're from later on in time and you know therefore they know more he really liked the idea of casting that as patronizing and giving equal agency, I guess, to the past figure. He says, 
what really enamored him with that was that Gwyneth doesn't want to be a modern girl. She do- she doesn't find what Rose is suggesting is liberating or anything. Uh, he he liked that kind of resistance to the idea that Rose can emancipate her. He thought that was a fascinating thing uh, with Gwyneth. And he thought that it's too easy a trap with Doctor Who and how you write it that everywhere you go, that there's going to be a possible companion, someone who would be a companion and someone whose life would be enlivened if they went and traveled with a doctor because they're interesting and spunky or whatever and therefore they'd be bettered by modernity. And he really liked the idea of exploring, well, what if there is indeed a really interesting figure in the past that we love and everything, but they're perfectly happy. <laughs> that That is quite gay to see, isn't it? They're perfectly happy in Victoriana. Uh and they wouldn't feel bettered by modernity and that we're kind of patronizing them by this assumption that uh, the the modern world is the modern world's liberation is what they need. I really like the idea that it's, it's a bit of a cliche, really, that a kind of liberated modern woman comes into the past and does the same. She's actually very happy. She, she gets eight pounds a year and would have been happy with six. And she's all right. right. And I, I, I thought that was a nice thing to, yeah, to, yeah. to play with because it's unusual. And I think there's a lot you can dig into positive and negative with that vision but it, it certainly is a vision it's quite thought out uh his conceptualization there what do we think of that i think that makes something more coherent out of a beat that we're obviously going to talk about a lot where uh gwyneth's understanding of the gelf as angels and this this sort of kind beautiful vision she has is is inverted by the cold hard truth that they're just aliens and they're mean um that idea that that actually her world is okay and maybe it's kinder than the world of the doctor um that that does sort of uh, connect to to the rose gwyneth scenes um her world's okay actually in a way it's only it's only it's only because the doctor popped in and was like hey you can bring them through and whatever you can do this and made them real in a way that they ended up killing people <laughs> so well ended up killing her specifically not to get ahead of ourselves but that that idea that the it's the doctor's radical progressiveness his his idea that society can change to accommodate people um <laughs> the fact that the fact that 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 swerves into oh actually the people are bad it certainly lends uh, you can see how certain readings were born out of the episode it's kind of understated in the episode but the doctor does make things worse really because he enables the third act to happen by giving gwyneth that knowledge of how she can act as the bridge and everything which is what enables the gelf to you know gelf around at the end uh, so if they had if they'd never arrived charles dickens would have had a less positive last couple of months but the ghost situation well i guess you could argue what if the ghost stuff got worse and we got the zombified future cardiff but you could also argue uh it never would have gotten to that scale because she never would have worked out how to be the bridge and the arch and everything so it's kind of interesting to think the future visitors may have made the past worse the the trade-off is uh a celebrated and successful writer lives a slightly happier end of his life but a working class girl dies and gets forgotten yeah <laughs> very interesting <laughs> very isn't it um we were talking about rose and gwyneth's relationship and i noticed throughout this episode as soon as it becomes apparent that gwyneth is um the key and kind of endangered by this whole thing rose is really adamant that gwyneth shouldn't become the bridge to the gelf and she she tries to 
I, I think, uh, and that's where the whole um, Gwyneth accusing Rose of thinking she's stupid bit comes in. But I also get the sense that Rose is acting sort of protective of Gwyneth in a way that is patronising, but also born out of like concern for Gwyneth's welfare. And, and in light of the fact that Gwyneth does actually die the moment she tries to do the thing, it's like, well, does that mean does that mean Rose was sort of vindicated in her protectiveness of Gwyneth? Or does it just not mean that? I, what do you think? Because throughout, Rose is always telling Gwyneth, you have to do this, and she doesn't have to fight your battles, Doctor. And kind of um, trying to, I guess, like almost treating Gwyneth as like a... <laughs> I don't know. It's definitely connected to how the, the Doctor-Rose conflict rounds out, which sort of doesn't. Um, again, this, this will be getting into things later but um rose's sort of reactionary response her protective uh, uh don't risk gwen don't risk my future sort of gets proven right and and her her um her protectiveness over gwen and her criticism and resistance to the doctor's radical proposals sort of sort of bear true but it's not particularly framed as such in the episode i think it's an incredibly interesting bit of drama between the doctor and rose that doesn't tie up in exactly the kind of way you might expect it to and and leaves a few readings loose-ended the thing is, when um we get that great line from the doctor when he says, "Well, it's a different morality," and that's in yeah. response to Rose arguing that, "Well, we can't just we can't just have dead people walking around. God, it's it, you got respect to their bodies and and such. You, you can't just do that." And that's a really that's a really cool moment of characterization for the doctor and kind of cutting against the whole oh uh, preoccupation with decency and normality, or whatever. But again, that sort of gets neutralised once the issue actually becomes not the dilemma of having corpses walking around, but the dilemma of the Gelf being, you know, evil and murderous and stuff. So it's sort of you've got a setup for a, a kind of a debate that sort of gets, I think, forgotten about a little bit. It still it does feel like it expands the show a bit to have the companion and the Doctor argue over morality. But I really like that it a viewer can agree with Rose. In the situation, like it's not like the doctor imposes the morality over her, and she kind of shrinks down as like, "Oh dear doctor, you know, silly me, more fool me." Like people could think bodies need to be respected. I don't think the episode totally writes it off. It obviously Gatus, I you know, is going to be more towards the doctor's persuasion there, but I like it. Actually, feels like a bit of a moral dilemma in a way that. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not bringing up Dear Hardy. <laughs> it feels like an actual moral dilemma, in a way. You know, some other episodes that are more pat with it, or you know, position the Doctor just as totally right, and they don't entertain the other viewpoint much at all. Might at least that's how I. So maybe you guys disagree, and you think there's no validity to Rose's argument at all. But I feel like it actually feels like a moral dilemma you can kind of argue over. The um, and there's also certainly a connection, um, a sort of ladder. A moral, a weird moral triangle where Rose's modern and liberated uh, viewpoint rubs up against Gwyneth's more conservative aesthetic and the Doctor's um, 
the Doctor's progressive and modern outlook rubs up against Rose's own conservative, well, arguably conservative protectivist feelings. Uh, but Gwyneth and the Doctor agree. So it's not what's presented like a straightforward sort of ladder of um, progressiveness and some people more open to change than others turns out not to be because Gwyneth and the Doctor agree. I think that's what Gatiss is kind of speaking to. It's lovely that the, there's moral complications here and they're not neatly resolved as, you know, past is silly and backward looking and the future is all progressive and, you know, they've worked it all out. I love that it's complicated and it's almost more on character lines, I think, yeah. And I, I honestly think I think this ties into all the stuff we're talking about, the setting, and that it feels like it exists without us. All this stuff feels like the show is kind of bigger than the episode, if that makes sense. It feels like this these debates go on beyond the confines of the episode. And the fact we don't all neatly sort the viewpoints into who you might expect to have them, it, it just makes the world feel kind of extant or like existing without us, I think. It, I, I Very immersive again. The, and it, it's not a massive focus of the episode. I sort of wish it was more, but- uh, I appreciate how much uh, focus at certain points is given to Dickens's sort of social conscience. Yeah. Uh, the fact that he was writing for a purpose um, and writing for a purpose that was very um, focused on class and that refracts through Gwyneth as a character and the, the, the Dr. Rose dynamic as well, which is very classed. Class coded, very the the um when he says, uh, the, um this is my morality. You get used to it, or you go home, or whatever. Um, it's an eviction. It's this is my time machine. <laughs> I own this. You can follow me, or you can fuck off. He pulls rank, um, which is uh, which which. Sneed does as well, several times. And so you get a really nice class coding of their relationship, which, of course, it is. It, it's always been class coded. Uh, but it moves to the forefront in an interesting way that a lot of the time I find gets forgotten. You know, interesting, you mentioned um, Dickens' social conscience. And um, that scene where he's talking to the Doctor and he asks the Doctor is, well, has my whole life been just a complete... Has it all been pointless now that I actually exist in the universe with of sci-fi aliens and jack-o'-lanterns <laughs> and stuff floating around? And and then that and that scene sort of ends. We don't see how if the Doctor responds to that at all. It's left hanging. So it's sort of um it's a thorny unresolved question. I think obviously Charles Dickens feels like his arc is very satisfied by the end of this episode. He doesn't feel like it's a big problem for him at all. He feels inspired to write some more stuff. Like he feels, okay, I can totally function in this new funny world of um, jack-o'-lanterns and stuff. But the actual, I think the thornier question of what do, what does his social conscience, what does, what, do, what does his life of writing about injustices to do with class and how humans mistreat each other, how does that fit in a world full of, well, with the real bigger conflicts are to do with aliens and such and you know, gelf and ghosts and things and zombies. That, um, which is more a question of I guess genre, really. I mean, the only way in which it makes sense is the question of genre, which is uh, how do how do these ideas fit into Doctor Who? I guess is the big thing being asked here. I guess in sci-fi and fantasy more generally, and that's just left for the viewer to ponder over. I suppose. I think it's quite interesting that Dickens triumphs over the evil aliens, the angels, 
through um you know the science basically he 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 uses the he figures out you know chemically oh we use the gas like this we'll fight it with gas he 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 sciences the shit out of the episode basically which is interesting you know how he gets this rejuvenated vision of the world and the kind of wonders beyond you know our conception uh just occurred to me it's kind of interesting because he engineers the resolution of the climax through science basically uh, through reason uh, but of course, you know, part of the climax is also the supernatural element of Gwyneth is dead in the arch uh, for quite some time um, before she, you know, fires away and fires everything up. I've never got a read on that beat. I I don't know what it's trying to do. The idea that Gwen's been dead the whole time, the whole conversation with her, she was already dead. Don't know what it's doing. I spent a lot of time thinking about this episode. I've got a lot of notes. Um, I don't really get a sense of of what that's meant to achieve other than the doctor sort of excusing the fact that she explodes herself i think i think part of it's the narrative convenience of let's get out of the moral conundrum the, let's get out of the moral dilemma you know with the doctor <laughs> kind of unscathed but i think um it, it just i there's not that much depth to it but it's you know it's just spooky oh she died and then she was supernaturally because she's a medium she was mediuming herself she was, um <laughs> Like, it's like the star ghost of Astrid in Voyage of the Damned. Yeah. It's one of those moments that you occasionally get where, oh, wow, how mystical. Oh, isn't, 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 that, isn't this deep, isn't this sad and profound? How mystical. She was dead, but some ghost of her still lived and just, just enough to do the heroic thing and save the day. Oh, you know, it's that kind of pathos, which I think uh, floats around in You Who a fair bit. I think the idea of a medium possessing themselves is actually quite cool, but it's just done in, you know, this... The vehicle of it is just to kind of resolve the plot without having to get too thorny and to wrap it up in forty-five minutes. So it is what it is. I think that that um, I think that's quite powerful in a way that the episode isn't probably intending. Again, we're circling around a big conversation here, but the fact that um, that being dead, being incorporeal, being a ghost, essentially. Uh, Gwyneth is just as much herself and the fact that she can still do the heroic sacrifice even though she is sort of like the Gelth now um, suggests something about the personhood of the Gelth and the fact that being an incorporeal ghost thing doesn't make you a bad person it doesn't make you inhuman but the Gelth separately are um, it is set up earlier in the episode, isn't it? That when the when the corpses are possessed, they still retain some element of what they were trying to do, like the grandma going to Charles Dickens, the great man. So maybe it's something like that, connected to that, maybe? There is some spirituality there of... Um, maybe there is an afterlife. Uh, Gwyneth's in the nether sphere. Uh, but the the idea that, that Dickens resolves the plot by sciencing it... Um, I think I think ties together into quite an interesting, quite coherent um, read on that bit with the Gelth, in that he uh, he he's worried that his world is a small part that the the things he's been talking about, you know, social structures and the way that um, the UK and England specifically work, um, are now are now. 
uh, sort of overshadowed by this bigger universe that exists outside the realms of comprehension. And so his climactic moment being realizing that they actually obey the same physical rules as everything else, literally that they're material and that because they are material, they can be affected by material means like sucking the gas out of the, the, the bodies with, I don't really get the science there. But the fact that he does science based on the materiality of the ghosts sort of suggests that his... The, the resolution is that his material and social and class-based worldview does actually stretch to cover the supernatural. And that the supernatural is itself just an extension of the material. Um, and that the same principles that he's written about can apply to to alien threats which um come from outside england um which the doctor says are very foreign which again we we circle around the the lawrence miles essay ironically though you mentioned that um it's contingent on him realizing the gulf are bound to the same physical laws as everything else and stuff but um when they immediately afterwards talk about how uh gwyneth could have um done the thing with the match despite having already been dead dickens says D dickens gives us the quote there are mm. more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy which is going back to that well you know the world being wondrous and incomprehensible is actually actually fine and profound and beautiful and things and things like that so it sort of which sort of cuts against the idea that he's um happy being able to that, that, that he can only be happy if it's all explicable and it actually sounds more like he's fine with things not being explicable because he just I don't know. I, it, I think it's sort of, it's muddy, I think is the real thing. It's not um, particularly focused on landing on one specific uh, clear-cut version of this. You get a sense of the Gelf being explained down to their origins as, you know, their time will fall out, like everyone is. Um, and then you reintroduce that element of woo and unknown and mystic um, by having uh, possibly some notion of an actual afterlife. Uh yeah, uh, I think that's interesting. It goes both ways. It it resolves things by making them material and makes other things more vague, more immaterial, which lets him have his lease on life. I think charitably, I think this is part of, again, the feeling the episode exists outside of just its confines of, you know, less than an hour on Saturday is that there is there is a kind of murkiness to that. I think I, well, do, do you guys think it's um it's a weakening thing? Do you think it's like a, incoherent thing or do you think it's kind of an expansive thing that, that that you can kind of read dickens's like expanding mindset at the end there in a way that maybe cuts against the climax or is it, or is it just a kind of larger inclusion do you guys think it's weakening the climax or do you think it's just kind of expanding the episode's exploration of these ideas i in the same way we were talking about the doctor companion uh, argument, the, the, the moral disagreement not going entirely resolved. I think a lot of the episode ends on that, that sort of refusal to neatly tie things up and, and accepting the, the expansiveness of it and the open-endedness. Um, which I think works against the episode in some regards, but gets you the emotional end point and gets you the, the Dickens rejuvenation that is really the heart of the episode. Um, even if it, gets a bit sort of thematically frustrating. I kind of feel as though the ending with the rejuvenated Dickens who goes off to them, you know, die in a few months. I, I, <laughs> I think, I feel like that ending of the episode is what we would get 
regardless of how the third act went immediately beforehand. Because when we transition out of, wow, it's so sad that the serving maid saved the world and no one will ever know, straight to like, hey, okay, I'm going to go back and reunite <laughs> my family. I'm happy now. Cool. Awesome. I'm so cheered up now. It's sort of, the, 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 that's, there's something jarring about that scene transition. I think it's mainly because the... I think it's mainly just because the, the Dickens bit is the really important bit that the script wants to like get to and get right. And I, I don't know if it really grows that naturally out of the stuff with Gwyneth immediately beforehand. Do you, do you disagree? I, well, I think the, the final scene, I don't, I think it's not just joyous. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I do think there's melancholy. Yeah. So I think there's a kind of multiplicity of what's going on. There. <laughs> you may even call it Dickensian. Uh, the kind of, mix of emotions there i guess you're like raising is gwyneth subsumed by centering everything on dickens at the end there is that what we're kind of suggesting kind of in a way but not even necessarily just by dickens but just i guess by the the structure of the celeb historical and just doctor who generally i think it's like a and it certainly becomes such a tradition by now even 2022 to have the scene where a character we like sacrifices themselves oh so sad yeah okay next adventure you know that's become part of the dna of new who at this point so i think it's maybe not specific to dickens so much but it's just characters like that kind of getting swallowed once they've done their big self-sacrifice sad thing i can see that uh what we needed was was we needed Dickens to find a really big rock to name after Gwyneth. <laughs> <laughs> Another note on this sciencey stuff that I think is really interesting. The Tenth Doctor I see is quite the edgy atheist type. Uh, of course, you know, the impossible planet Satan Pit gets pretty direct about this, but I think his characterization in general is this kind of arrogant, I know how everything works. And, you know, I'm going to presume I understand what's going on. And if this doesn't fit into my conception, then clearly you're the one that's wrong, not me. I think he generally has that kind of vibe, um, that kind of arrogance to him. The Ninth Doctor, I don't think really does in the same way. And so, so a beat I find really interesting in the episode is that Nine just kind of accepts that Gwen has psychic gifts. Uh, he kind of rolls with that. And I think that's quite different from some of the more edgy atheisty conceptions of the doctor like 10 not just 10 but like 10 and part of that is dickens fulfills the function of the edgy atheist so i'm using atheist just to mean you know science type here uh dickens fulfills that role in the episode i think that's part of nine's characterization that i find quite interesting is that i think he like dickens talks about at the end nine is i think more open to um wonders of the world Basically, it was very interesting. Here, the, the Doctor has always been very anti-magic. Uh, it's always got a scientific base, and, and what I was very keen to do here, the Doctor kind of immediately accepts that she has psychic gifts of whatever, whatever they come from, and he doesn't sort of try and poo-poo it all. He just, you know, he appeals to her and says, "Reach out; it's in your control." And it's not sort of. I'm not trying to sort of too um, spiritual about it so to speak but I think it's interesting he doesn't just immediately say it's poppycock in fact Dickens yeah. takes on that role right? yeah, yeah. and I think part of this is because as conceived of in this 2005 series he's he's recovering you know from a huge traumatic event and I think he's he's seen a lot of shit basically and so I think he's a little more open-minded in well yeah a bit more open-minded in some ways I just think it's a really interesting beat how he just kind of rolls with Gwyneth being psychic and I like how I like what that says for the genre of the show in 2005 as well in that something I don't like with 
Doctor Who a lot of the time is this kind of need to always put a sciencey explanation in for even like the fantastical or the magical episodes. And it doesn't happen always, but definitely in New Who, it nearly always happens. This is something I preferred about Torchwood sometimes, is that sometimes we would just have the kind of magic-y explanation instead and we wouldn't try to explain it as well. Actually, they're from this galaxy and they're using a... I like that, um, you know, sometimes more of the EU of Doctor Who or Torchwood or something will just kind of let magic be magic sometimes. But so in Series 1, even though we get it explained, the Gelf of the Gelf and blah, 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 I like that Nine just kind of is kind of more naturally accepting of the supernatural stuff than I think different doctors would have been. I think that's interesting. I do think psychics in particular seem to be in you who something that has just become part of the lexicon. Like we don't seem to really get much in the way of explanations for stuff. Like it happens uh, in Hyde, you get another psychic woman who's just mm. you know casually accepted to be an empath or whatever she is. And uh, I think you, you just say Planet of the Dead just then, Oliver, because you've got yeah. that lady from the bus. Yeah, yeah. I, I think. I think it's because maybe it's because psychics are like sort of low level woo compared to you know vampires <laughs> or um, I don't know or casting spells like Harry Potter or whatever. I think the, the fact that because you can do a because the realization of a psychic on screen is just a person talking and having knowledge that maybe they shouldn't know. I think you can kind of um, you can slot them in without it needing to uh, rupture genre too much. If you see what I mean, it's sort of it, it's subtle in a way. It's sort of subtle woo. And it's inherently dramatic, which I think is part of it. It doesn't add a whole new dimension to a story. It's just characters now have an excuse to talk about their thoughts a bit more. So it, it slots dramatically into an episode quite well. And also it's, you know, it's the more believable kind of woo. It's, it's if someone knows a bit more than they really should, well, there's lots of explanations for that. Maybe they're really good at reading body language. Who knows? But I, I've always liked that looseness a lot. I, I love in Heaven Sent when the Doctor talks open a door. Because why not, right? <laughs> a little bit of magic. Why not? Yeah, this is one of my um, one of my constant, one of my perennial bugbears with Doctor Who is that I think it's rightfully talked up as having this freedom to do anything and that episodes can do whatever they want and that, you know, there's no rules, which is great. And I love that idea. And, you know, everything's going to be new all the time and we can reboot and we can be new at all the time. And yet often that seems to resolve into doing the identical structures, just kind of swapping out the plates. You know, the, this monster is going to be a different monster, but we're doing the same thing. Or, you know, this regeneration is going to work this way, but it's going to be the same thing. That's something that frustrates me with nearly always giving the sci-fi explanations to the magic-y stuff. The show should feel liberated to do things differently, basically. And so I like that this episode, even though it does give a science explanation, it feels a little more open to the supernatural than uh, some other episodes. I think it's become such an unfortunate Doctor Who shorthand. Probably, although I think, like you say, this episode does it well, probably born originally out of this episode um, is both the, the idea that what Doctor Who does is it goes and meets historical figures and what doctor who does is that it explains fantasy ideas with boring science um and i think this episode deals with both the historical figure and the fantasy science elements really quite well but it becomes by the time you get to the shakespeare code quite a dull shape for the show to be where it's just look it's x fantasy monster but in in y setting and they're actually from planet Z. Like Vampires of Venice is a very obvious example. We're, we're moving into the next thing I wanted to discuss, which is some of the histor- hi- historical element 
of the episode and kind of setting up historical celebrity historicals as they work in New Who. Uh, so, some this reading from uh, the Inside Story book here. Something that script editor Helen Raynor kept an eye on with stories involving real historical figures was representation. In her words, if we were making an explicitly revisionist program asserting that Dickens never wrote any of his works and was in fact a violent criminal, I'm sure there would be some objections. I don't think anybody watching would think that we're saying that he really was haunted by strange aliens, which completely changed his outlook on life. Helen admits that there is a seductive cheekiness to fitting real-life facts around a story of complete fiction and invention. In her words, I think that reflects a natural curiosity and naughtiness in everyone's nature. To suggest Dickens started writing Edwin Drood because he'd seen some strange spectral aliens is a very cheeky idea. (laughs) We have absolutely no evidence that that was the case, nor do we have any that it wasn't. (laughs) We'd only have to be careful if we implied something malicious or scurrilous. And in the context of a family show like Doctor Who, it is very unlikely that Russell or Julie Gardner are going to stray into areas that bring that risk. <laughs> Isn't it funny? This book was written in RTD1, but that sentence actually applies now since they're both <laughs> running the show again. Anyway, for Russell, the episode represents what he terms the received memory of what Doctor Who was, in Russell's words, except actually it wasn't. People believe that figures like Dickens used to pop up all the time in the old series, but they didn't. In the very early days, you'd have Napoleon or Marco Polo, but The Unquiet Dead was the start of what I call the celebrity historical, getting a famous actor in to play someone important to us all. I love the size of the story, the romance of it, the comedy of it, and the ability to attract an actor like Simon Callow because the writing is so good that Dickens becomes a real character. Uh, So the two ideas there are Helen Raynor saying, we can't, you know, like, suggest believably that you know, this figure did this or whatever, but it's cheeky and fun to kind of fit in Doctor Who around their lives. And Russell saying this episode kind of formalized the celebrity historical idea. And it makes me think of something like the Unicorn and the Wasp, which takes, you know, a real thing from Agatha Christie's life, that odd little missing period, and inserts a big old wasp into it. Do you guys think this kind of idea of let's look at a point of a real figure's life and see where we can fit the monsters in uh do you think that's fun? Do you think sometimes it's a little off color or do you think it just depends on the episode or the writer? I think the purest example of it is, well, perhaps the most remarked upon example is well, the, 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 the chicken thing from Vincent the Doctor. <laughs> that's the one that gets complained about the most, I think, because that's the episode where it's the most, I guess, jarring in an episode that is so um, richly observed in exploring the historical characters, uh, I guess, legacy and personality and, and life and artwork and stuff and then you just have this invisible chicken <laughs> thrown in there which is um doing its best to be a metaphor and be non-literal and stuff and be clever but it's still it's still it's still it's, it's still a monster flung into something which i think a lot of people feel maybe doesn't actually need one and I, honestly it makes me um you brought up uh, Napoleon and Marco Polo and stuff, and it makes me think back to, you know, we used to have pure historicals. They didn't always throw yes. a giant wasp in. You know, that was a thing once. And it's just become one of these things that started early on in New Who, but just got locked in, that we have, you know, the giant monster or the ridiculous creature thrown in, and some historical celebs' life gets um, slotted in around this thing, or the other way around, you see what I mean? It's become a cliché. That's the thing. I think if you've decided to tell a Charles Dickens story and you've got a real core to that and you're playing with the genre stuff, um, 
you it's then fun as a writer to find little little ways you can explain real historical questions that no one's going to take seriously i think that's that's fine and that's fun um you can then run into problems when you don't have a core that good for your story you don't have a really clear idea of the emotional point um or you blur the lines between the cheeky cheeky nod wink oh what if there was a big wasp uh, and the real emotional story and then you start implying things you don't mean to about the past um yeah and i i, I think uh, like you read in the quote it's really important that it's clear to the audience that this isn't what actually happened and you're not implying at all that this is what actually happened you're saying wouldn't it be funny if yeah um using the big wasp as an explanation for a book cover fun why not you know uh, maybe that's where that book cover image came from um but often it sort of uh slips into rewriting uh a person's history or a historical event um in in the way that rosa by introducing these um these sci-fi elements ends up implying problematic things about the nature of that historical event um and it's you know uniqueness yeah, I agree with what you I think it's a boring answer, but basically it depends <laughs> how the episode does it. Uh, yeah. Basically is the answer. Like I think this is kind of a cheat if you want to consider this a celebrity historical or not. But I think the other great to my mind Gators historical robot of Sherwood uh uses the like genre element beautifully because it kind of uses it to probe at and interrogate and do fun things with the whole figure of Robin Hood. The the way it does the um, monster element of the episode and you know you, you, it's it's actually looking into the conception of robin hood and you know what the legend means and everything and that ties into the larger series eight themes like it's very kind of holistic and kind of thought through the whole episode the way it's using the figure and the way it's adding in you know what if this crazy bit of the robin hood legend was connected to this thing and our, our monsters are kind of reflecting the legend and blah 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 like that's all really well done it kind of is a cheat answer i suppose since that episode is so kind of meta about that stuff but yeah, I think it's you. You can feel when something's just kind of inserted weirdly, kind of like as a prop, and then you can feel when it's really kind of baked through with the figure. And sometimes, even when it is kind of a prop-ish vision, if you feel a huge amount of affection for the figure in the episode, it kind of kind of gels anyway. I kind of feel like that with the Agatha Christie episode. I don't love a lot of the actual idea uh, it's suggesting. With you know, what if in this period of her life it was a big wasp or whatever? I'm I think some of that kind of sits weirdly with her actual life, but the episode clearly reveres Agatha Christie. You can clearly tell that, uh, um, you know, who and RTD are both big fans of Christie and it kind of shines through the episode. And I think there's, some, there's kind of an endearing thing sometimes when you can feel a great deal of respect for the figure. Um, but then again, I hate how Shakespeare code works, even though I'm sure that Roberts and RTD both love Shakespeare. So, who knows? Shakespeare code's not very dramatic that's one degree away from saying it's just not very good um yeah I, I i don't like it at all but it doesn't bear out it's not really about shakespeare as a person in the same way that the other two are it's about the last harry potter book <laughs> something that 
sticks out to me on the topic of like portraying a historical character and feeling, I guess, real versus feeling flat and shitty, like maybe Shakespeare code or whatever. Um, in this episode, when the Doctor first meets Dickens, he goes on his whole automatic squee thing. I'm like, oh my God, I'm such a big fan. Let's reference all your works. But later on in the episode, you know, the Doctor tells Dickens to you know, shut up. Like, just shut the fuck up. Stop being annoying. <laughs> you, 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 you shut up. Okay, we're trying to do the plot here. Stop getting in the way with your skepticism and your silliness. And I like that the, they're able to actually have... The, obviously, he goes back and apologises later. You know, comes crawling back. I love that. But uh, yeah, but I like that they aren't afraid to have the Doctor actually talk to the celeb character like their actual person and potentially even you know butt heads with them and not not just you know suck them off all the time right i think if it gets to if it gets too like masturbatory or whatever then it's just kind of lame i think you want them to be a real character the, i feel like what you're saying basically it's the complete opposite of the scene in rosa where ryan just gawps at martin luther king <laughs> <laughs> yeah they, they don't they literally don't have any they have no meaningful dialogue. They're just kind of there for everyone to gawp at and go, hey, it's an actor playing the figure and we all love the figure. Isn't this in- incredible? Uh, and it really, it, it isn't because I feel like it's so self-aware then that I, I don't get any sense of it is the figure. I'm just aware that's an actor. He doesn't even really look that much like Martin Luther King and he's just standing there and recalling him Martin Luther King. Like it's, it's a very, it kind of starts getting me to question the nature of fiction and how TV works and everything. So I'm kind of, what are we doing here? Like, that isn't Martin Luther King. And he's not doing a single thing related to Martin Luther King. He's just a guy that we're all gawping at and that Tozen Cole's acting kind of amazing. It's, it's very, very bizarre. And like all the best Chibnall works, it gets, I know he only co-wrote it. Or like all the best Chibnall works, it gets me questioning everything about how TV <laughs> works. Um, but in this episode, it's like, like you're saying, Dickens isn't a figure. He's a character. The other characters interact with them. They question him. Uh, Nine calls out the ropey bits of Martin Tuzzlewit. And he, you know, he, 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 when Dickens does something he doesn't like or he disagrees with Dickens' morality or cowardice or anything, he pulls him up on it. And then that's such a nine beat that he apologizes for it as well. That's a beautiful moment with that doctor. But yeah, he's, he's integrated into the actual episode as a character, not just as like a statue that we're all gawping at. That, that conversation in the coach about the doctor being a big fan it's very goofy and very uh very much it's a convention conversation yeah um a fan a means of keeping oneself cool <laughs> what do you mean <laughs> very silly but as much as it is a weird exaggeration i think that it's exactly the right kind of exaggeration in that it nests uh the idea that dickens is a celebrity but he's also just a person. Like Mark Gattis is a writer who's probably had that conversation with a fan a couple of times. Um, he, he's just, he's just another writer. And in as much as uh, Dickens, as much as anyone except probably Shakespeare is, is a nation defining writer, you know, uh, something our country obsesses over. Um, the episode never actually treats him like, he's not a person. Um, even in that conversation at the end where the Doctor goes, oh, of course, you'll be remembered, your work's great forever. It, it, it's never uh, about him as a purely... Uh, it's never about the image of Dickens. It's always about the person of Dickens. Yeah, they don't define him by his work. They don't just have all his dialogue be references to shit he wrote. In fact, there's barely any of that, to be honest. Which is so much better than later ones. And is, is sort of the furthest... I, I assume you've both read 
Max uh, Max Kashevsky's mythological celebrity article. I have not read that. Oh, well, it's quite good. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but basi- basically argues that after um, Robot of Sherwood, the Capaldi era replaces the celebrity historicals with celebrity mythologicals. Interesting. Where the figures are all fictional, basically. You know, Robin Hood, fictional, Santa Claus, fictional, um, Superman, sort of, oh. and the first Doctor. Interesting. But so they replace the celebrity historicals with... Um, entirely fictional people, mythological ideas of people, um, which this is sort of the furthest away from the, that we get. Because you, you get that sort of bubbling up in the RTD era accidentally, where Shakespeare is just the idea of himself. He's just references to plays. Um, he's just a running joke, really. But it, it's not made intentional. Um, but that sort of spectrum of how real you treat a historical person an interesting concern for a show that does celebrity meet up history episodes it's a good article i recommend yeah i'll, I'll have to read that it's funny because this this and robot are my favorite gators episodes and they're probably my favorite um celebrity historicals in new who as well mm. uh, when i'm thinking of it it's interesting it's a very evolved approach i have this intrusive thought of the actor for shakespeare in that episode i think uh, maybe I'm misremembering this and it doesn't go how I remember, but I think at one point he kind of seductively says, hey, nonny, nonny to Martha. Yeah. And it just it abruptly enters my head sometimes and it's always very ugly. <laughs> uh, yeah, that episode is something else. Um, <laughs> Pits. <laughs> one of my least favorite. Just, ugh. Everything this gets right, Shakespeare Code goes on to attempt to repeat and entirely get wrong. Yeah. So, well, talking of Gatiss, two little points on him. One, this is just kind of a stray thought. I don't know where else to put it. But in a featurette, he says, I have a very good ear for dialogue and language. I've got a good ear for dialogue and, and, and language, I think. And, and to me, it was all about kind of absorbing the, the influences of the, of the period and everything I liked about the, the way that people spoke and then feeling that you could make it authentic sounding. And it's, it's, that's very different to being actually authentic and true to the absolute period because that's a different way of speaking. It's inventing a kind of TV Victoriana. Getting a right balance of the flavour you kind of put in that suggests the certain period he's writing in while not being actually authentically how they spoke at all. I thought that was interestingly self-aware, uh, an observation. He, he, can, he can play the range there where Robot of Sherwood goes so far over the top in <laughs> all the cliches and it's too much flavor and that's the point um this is pitched quite well uh just interesting that um in rtd's era um gattis is pitching slightly more towards realism and then in moffat's era it starts going all camp all the time um way exaggerated i think that's an interesting difference of approaches difference of approaches is the term I'm looking for here. Uh, because this, you know, just as The Empty Child wasn't Moffat's first Doctor Who, just as Rose wasn't RTD's first Doctor Who, The Unquiet Dead wasn't Gatiss's first Doctor Who, there's no, there's no way to put, there's no other way to put this. In his very own words, Gatiss says, this is not just a book or audio, it's the real thing. Huh? So... Oh, don't let Briggs know he said that. 
<laughs> actually slightly nervous about starting after all these years although I've told everyone I've had it in my head for 30 odd years but it's uh, it's very different thinking this will be the one this is actually going on television this is Doctor Who not just a book or even a, an audio play it's it's the real thing and it's extraordinary how much pressure I'm feeling there's a, a John Pertwee story I wrote for BBC Books called Last of the Gadarene, which is about a race evacuating from a dying planet and kind of making themselves into formless things and then needing a shell on the other side. Um, I've never been on the telly, so I thought, why not? <laughs> but uh, I, really, I think it was the living dead that suddenly became the thing. It was like, my God, can we do zombies on Saturday nights on BBC One? Uh, and Russell and everyone got very excited about the notion of, of doing Victorian zombies. Well, he'd done Last of the Gadarene, which is like a, a third Doctor book, and he'd definitely done... Is Invaders from Mars? Oh, Invaders would have been, yeah. That, that's the closest relation, I think. yeah. Now that's a that's a proper episode. I I, I would almost say that's the real thing. <laughs> in in his words, that's a um, it's, it's the premiere and it sets up the it's a premiere, isn't it? It sets up the series arc of you know the wobbly history, uh, and it's a big kind of exciting romp. That that's a actual episode. He shouldn't sell himself that short. It's very similar to how I I've always thought it's sort of the Invaders from Mars sort of set the tone for knew who's historicals because it's very situated in a historical moment yeah and very much draped in another text which this is obviously draped in dickens yeah um, i know i'm i'm being this sort of anorak saying you know actually the second season premiere of paul mcgann's audios preceding you know christopher Eccleston's run you know presaged all this stuff in new who but whatever i love them so sometimes we're gonna nerd out like that anyway anyway it counts as a series <laughs> it does, let's it get does. it on the list <laughs> in gatus's words what well, he's, he's talking about last of the gathering is his john per <laughs> he calls it a john pertwee book which i find so funny because <laughs> it's a third doctor who book but what's john pertwee got to do with it <laughs> you know it's he's he's he's, he's long gone by this point, there's no actor perform. Paul, it, he, he wrote a Paul McGann audio. You can say that because Paul McGann's performing it. It's not really a John Pertwee book. I'm just, I'm annoyingly <laughs> splitting hairs. I just think it's a funny thing. Well, he was imagining John Pertwee performing it when he wrote the book, perhaps. Of course. He was probably dressed as John Pertwee uh, as he was writing it. We're actually going to integrate all these ideas at the end because we're going to talk about a writer who wrote both a John Pertwee and Paul McGann book together. Two of them, in fact. <laughs> But interfering with one another. Indeed, indeed. Have either of you two read Last of the Gathering? I have not read it, sadly. No. Sus. I think it's the most normal thing in the world, I think, to just take an idea from a book you've written, put it in your, you know, you, you're, you're part of the revival of Doctor Who. You're going to put your ideas on the screen, even if you've written them in the book before. I think it's natural and logical and makes sense. It's a good idea. Something that's really nice about this episode, I think, is that Gatiss... You see some episodes where writers talk about them and they were clearly weren't happy with how they turned out or they weren't unhappy but it turned out so differently to how they conceived of it that it feels a bit weird or that they were a certain writer or two or three or four in this era actually where um i mean their names on the tin but how much of them is actually in the episode is is the question but with gatus uh, he's very happy when he talks about this episode he, he says yeah, i couldn't really have been happier just there's always tiny things that you would do differently if you were actually able to be there all the time but they're so small you know it, it's uh 
I was uh, thrilled with it. And if you know, if I fell under a under a mechanoid tomorrow, and that was my only contribution to Doctor Who, I would be very happy. And he would have been perfectly happy if this was his only contribution to Doctor Who. And um, I mean, only you you done that novel and his audios, Mark, as well. But it's very nice that he felt like this was a complete sort of thing and he's he has this kind of teary moment where he's talking about just hearing like the assistants assistant directors on set saying the word gelf um the strangest thing of all was just hearing people casually saying the gelf <laughs> especially the first assistant lied to say so the gelf the gelf is streaming up up into the the upper circle and you uh you look at that and the gelf come through and then the gelf over there <laughs> it's just a silly name for doctor who wants <laughs> power Fantastic. So I had a wonderful day, one of the nicest days of my whole life, probably. It's, it seems so unreal. I, I never really thought it was happening. It seems like a strange dream because I've waited, honestly, all my life to do this. And uh, I was quite overwhelmed for a few moments. I had a few tears. <laughs> it was like, I, I got the kind of Saturday night feeling again. First time, I don't know how long, it just felt amazing. And it was not only I was watching Doctor Who email, I was watching my Doctor Who email. It's nice to see all the effort and the validation, I think. Like there's a bit in the Doctor Who Confidential episode where the DP for the episode is talking about, well, I was thinking about historical accuracy uh, for the time. And so I was trying to think of uh, what kind of color filters can I use that, you know, would integrate with the firelight they have at the time. Obviously, there was gas in Dickensian time, but mostly firelit and um, oil lamps and, and candles. And the way I'm making it warm is a combination of putting color filters on lights and putting filters on camera. Could you please double on the CTO It's just, it's really lovely to see, to see this sort of passion and, you know, people really trying to bring something to life in a way that they feel serves them well and serves the audience well. There's just a lot of heart, I think, here, which is really nice. The color choices are in my notes as well. Um, it's really well colored this episode. Uh, it catches the tone perfectly, very warm when they're around the fire. The seance stuff is spooky. It's very well lit. And it does feel like an episode where the kind of Vaseline smeared look of series one actually really suits yeah. like the setting time period. Yeah. I also, I know, um, I don't think Gig agrees with me, but I adore the uh, sickening green TARDIS colour in series one, which is on good display in this episode's first TARDIS scene. I think it's otherworldly and just odd and delightful. The TARDIS feels like a kind of, not hostile, but strange place, I think. Whereas by Series 4 and the Tenant Specials, the first Tenant Specials, it feels quite cosy, which is a bit less interesting to me. I, I like the oceanic lighting uh, back here. That's, wow. I've... Yeah, my silence level, <laughs> I think. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I see where you're coming from with the sort of um, neon green sort of wash over everything. I, I just, yeah, it just hurts my eyes. That's really all it is. <laughs> you, you know, um, no, actually, I we, we're even on this because aesthetically, I really don't like Matt's first TARDIS, but I get, <gasps> it. I get what it's going for. And like, I completely understand why I suppose you two do like it. So uh, I guess we're even on the different... Yeah. TARDIS aesthetics. And we all like Capaldi's TARDIS, don't we? So, yeah, I think there's something to agree of on. Of course. We all adore that one, yes. There's one thing I want to talk about before the thing to talk about, the uh, the Gelf issue, uh, and that's Christmas. So, 
Datus is on the record saying he was keen to make this a Christmas episode. So I was very keen to sort of imbue the whole thing, make it a Christmas episode, and then imbue the whole thing with the Christmas carols. And on the commentary, he kind of nags about how he thinks the episode should be run again around Christmas time. <laughs> if we don't get a Christmas repeat, and there's something wrong. But of course, later on, you know, with the Christmas invasion, Doctor Who would get actual Christmas specials, which you would have for quite a long time, which would become a lovely tradition. Where does this episode sit in this whole kind of concept, do you think? I'm going to be honest, re-watching it, I... I, I forgot it was set at Christmas Eve. It really does not it really does not boast Christmasiness, I, I wouldn't think. Apart from the fact that, you know, there's snow, I guess, and ghosts And a bit of a Christmas carol. Yeah. I, I think ghost stories have this, at least in Britain, this kind of association with Christmas anyway. Like this feels more Christmassy to me than the next doctor. I feel that possible link with Ghost and Christmas might just be just because of a Christmas Carol. I'm not sure if like, anyone else is <laughs> no, really. Anyone else really? Is there more of a thing behind that? Yeah, that's that's a that's a tradition. It's people read M.R. James stories, and there's like the the BBC do those. Um, well, Gatiss does those. Mark Gatiss, yeah, yeah. He does he does those Christmas uh, ghost story uh, adaptations. At Christmas time, I think there's a ghost uh, Christmas connection. Although it does that sprout directly from a Christmas carol. Um, maybe, maybe. Yeah, I suppose the, the fact that it's the depths of winter, everyone's sort of huddled around the, the fireplace or whatever, people are in their homes, people are to, with their families. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it makes sense to be telling spooky stories around this kind of time. Tell you what, the Christmas angle doesn't do a lot to help the, the, the asylum seekers reading. Yeah, let's... Let's move into that now. So the way I want to start this final topic is, so we think about the reception of this episode. Uh, well, first, it's a bit of a spooky and scary episode, isn't it? And so uh, uh, reading from the Complete History book here, uh, concerned by the subject matter and atmosphere of the unquiet dead, the BBC indicated that the series was not necessarily suitable for children under the age of eight. Advice issued on Wednesday the 13th, following complaints from parents about their youngsters suffering sleepless nights after watching the episode. So then there was media coverage like Doctor Who Too Scary for Young Children, uh, and Mark Gatiss appeared on the radio to say he was quietly thrilled <laughs> by all this talk. The BBC then admitted that they thought that advice had been a mistake and that they leave it to the discretion of parents to ultimately decide what is suitable for their children to watch. Uh, and so we're getting into the idea of the episode having negative effects there, or, you know, kind of discourses around the reception of the episode, and people having sleepless nights over the episode, which folds into, how do who is Lawrence Miles? I think really, in essence, he's just a guy, but he has been almost reimagined as this enfant terrible of the wilderness years and of doctor who in general i mean that that th th that phrase has specifically been used to apply to apply to him so it's it's like i think he's someone who has created such a reputation for himself both through his incredibly memorable and impactful work in the spin-off sphere of doctor who i guess and tangential i guess works <laughs> sprouting out from that and also in just his sheer um outspokenness and his personality and his um both unwillingness and maybe inability to kind of keep it all buttoned up and professional and nice and polite 
the way that many other writers kind of are schmoozing around the British media scene are maybe better at doing. So he's just developed, he, he's just got a really iconic presence, I think, in fandom legend. To put this into context, he is a writer that, uh, well, in the context of Doctor Who, he writes some really super duper interesting books back uh, before New Who started. And then he um, originated the Faction Paradox spinoff, which has taken on an enormous life of its own, you know, past him running it. Uh, it's just, a, it's a huge kind of world of its own now uh, with all sorts of interesting uh, successes and journeys of its own. Uh, but you know, my experience with him, like the Eighth Doctor book, Alien Bodies, uh, I think is just, it, it's one of the most interesting Doctor Who stories you can talk about. It's 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 kind of like series one in that it feels like it's originated a whole new conceptualization of everything. It's a whole new way Doctor Who could be imagined or could be written, I think. And we've mentioned interference a bit earlier, which is another <laughs> he's he's got a big imagination, basically. And his imagination is so enthralling that like we've talked about with historicals, I think he gets kind of mythologized into this, like Gig is saying, you know, sometimes this very negative figure. And sometimes I think also this kind of creepily positive figure, like people get really obsessed by him. And my impression from reading him in more informal contexts, like seeing his Twitter or, you know, reading transcripts of like one-on-one interviews is that he's an interesting guy, but he's, he's just a guy, you know, he's not, he's not, he's not some hero or villain. He's just another Doctor Who fan like us. And he's, you know, he's an excellent writer. But I don't think he's a figure to make out into Satan or to make out into God either. And I'm, sh- I'm sure he doesn't appreciate either vision. I-, I think he's a more normal guy than he gets conceived of, basically. So he had a blog and he's very free with his thoughts. Or he was very free with his thoughts when he was watching Doctor Who uh, back in the day. And there are some really great, I guess you could say infamous Doctor Who interviews and pieces of writing over the years. Uh, one of my absolute favourites is Eric Saywood's gloriously catty exit interview he gave um, after leaving the show. Where he's just he's way too frank. There's no diplomacy about it, which is just lovely because the show, especially New Who, it's always talked about. Well, it's nearly always talked about in such diplomatic ways, isn't it? We would never, never talk about you know an actor kicking a producer down the stairs or anything. That's not the kind of thing that would ever get out. You know, and we all we talk about it. You know, it's all a great time. And things went great generally because it's a, you know, it's, there's, there's money on the line here. Uh, and to get things frankly talked about, usually they have to be a couple of decades old, but not everyone adheres to that, do they? And Lawrence Miles certainly doesn't or didn't adhere to that. So he didn't have that sense of diplomacy about don't trash talk writers. You should network with your other writers and, you know, you should, uh, you know, schmooze around. Uh, and I get the sense he resented all that kind of thing. And so, would you say that's fair, how I'm characterising all that? Yeah, I'd say pretty fair, yeah. A bit a fighty personality in fandom. And I also think driven by a sense of principle. Yes. Mm. Like, he's not the person who would just, who would just like, shut up and just be quiet about something he sees as wrong. You know, just because it's the polite thing to do would be to shut up, yeah. Yeah, and so there was things about the unquite dead which rankled him. Uh, and rather than speak about that in a coded way... You know, like uh, there was a Chibnall era writer who I think expressed some issues with the show in a very coded dip- diplomatic way. 
on his own blog. Uh, but that's not how Lawrence Miles rolls. And so he expressed his issues with Young Quite Dead very loudly. And um, that that <laughs> that was a bit of an explosion because you're not meant to do that, are you? You talk about a fellow, you know, Lawrence Miles isn't a writer on New Who or anything, but he was a Doctor Who writer. He wrote the you know, the the novel lines like Gatiss did and like RTD did. And so I guess there's a sense of you're not meant to speak out against your peers or something. And like Gig says, Lawrence Miles was very principled and he wasn't into this idea of diplomacy, you know, as a lot of other writers like like Cornell or whoever were. And so he, uh, he wrote this blog post. Well, he wrote two, but the initial blog post about the unquiet dead Okay, I'll, I'll read up parts of it to get to what we're talking about here. And of course, what we're about to talk about is the racial or refugee element of the episode, yeah, which is, a, I would say, a common reading. I wouldn't say an uncommon reading. I don't think by now. I think it's a reading that gets discussed quite a lot because it is kind of evident. I don't think it's like a harebrained thing. It's pretty, it's, it's there. The friend I rewatched the episode with brought it up independently. So it's clearly a thing people read into the story. Yeah. I, I I mean, it's like we've noted it wasn't in the early drafts. It came around later, but it is something in the final version of the episode uh, that the benevolent childlike aliens are the opposite. And then, of course, that they appear to be benevolent and childlike and, in fact, are quite the opposite. And they're not coming through to use the bodies peacefully as we're as they're being granted by the doctor and Gwyneth they're coming through to invade and take over and after the transfer I do like the idea so of them you know um I suppose having this pitiful facade they're not just arriving in a spaceship and saying earthlings your time is nigh they're actually conning them yeah. rather nicely yeah You've led us through and now we're gonna wreck your world and you know you've done the wrong thing by letting us mercifully in now we're gonna screw everything up and take over you and dominate you. And so what Lawrence Miles had to say on this back on the 9th of April, 2005, so hours after the episode went out, um, you know, not long at all, he, he opens by saying his review on Rose was so long and involved that the editor of Doctor Who Monthly mocked him for writing anything so complicated. So he's going to cut to the chase this time with his review for The Unquiet Dead. And so he... He goes on a bit and he says that the love of the outside world was the best thing Doctor Who used to have to offer. But, quote, given that we live in a society which has been forced into a permanent state of xenophobia, given that we live in a culture whose view of morality is largely based on the question of whether the people we meet are evil darkies trying to take our land and our women and our jobs, how well do you think I'm going to react to a story which explicitly, deliberately, equates aliens with foreigners and then says all aliens are evil they may look nice but they're out to swarm your country in their billions i'm sorry there's no other way of saying it this is offensive poisonous xenophobic asterisk 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 i know many of you will be saying aha but there have always been alien invasion stories in doctor who what's the difference so i'll tell you the difference there was never a time in the history of original Doctor Who, not even in the days when polite Middle England was terrified by the thought of being overrun by funny coloured people, when the programme pandered to that kind of vermin thinking by claiming that all foreigners were invaders. Goes on to say, he brings up other episodes and he talks about how he doesn't think they fit into this kind of paradigm. 
The Unquiet Dead is different. The Unquiet Dead is a story made at a point in time when the big electoral issue is whether the British should put up with foreigners at all or treat them like... Or treat them like... Scrounging? That's how you pronounce that word? Yeah. Oh, right. I see the the next word (laughs) is the problem I see. Yeah. (laughs) My bad. Whether the British should put up with foreigners at all, uh, or whether they should be treated like a bunch of refugees, about a bunch of asylum seekers who ask the doctor for his help and then turn out to be, all caps, evil aliens who just want to swarm your country. We will rape your women and defile your corpses. I'm trying my best to read out how he's done his little onomatopoeia there. Uh, the Doctor's argument against Rose, when Rose believes that it's wrong to let the aliens take over human bodies because it's just a bit sick, is one of the best arguments the Doctor has ever had to present. The level of tolerance in what he says is, or seems, remarkable. When he tells her that she's got to stop thinking as if her customs are automatically the right and proper ones, it's one of the most admirable moments in modern television. And then it turns out that Rose was right all along, because the aliens are really body-snatching... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> a lot of uh, language you have to it's not entirely sure how you handle it in a modern context yeah. isn't it like I'm not entirely mm-hmm. sure does that count as a slur is that mm, the, I don't know yeah the aliens are really body snatchers who deserve to be blown up Lawrence Miles then says I think erroneously I don't be- I don't seriously believe that Mark Gatiss will read this but on the off chance that he might stumble onto this while the ego is surfing I'm going to say it Mark in parentheses. Note that I've edited the end of this sentence slightly since I first read it. Now I've had time to calm down. So I'll, set a, so I'll settle for, Mark, you're a thoughtless halfwit. Sidebar. Uh, what was the original thing he wrote there? Don't know. I, I, we, we may never know. Okay. Mark, you're a thoughtless halfwit. Did you really think it was all right to write a script for this program? A program which is supposedly watched by the new generation and deliberately calculated to mean something, which sends out a vile, appalling, dangerous message like this. Did you think it didn't matter? Did you think it would never have an impact? At best, this is Doctor Who, the Michael Howard years, a new version of the program for the kind of NF-loving scum who take the shoot or the asterisk, 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 view of anyone who wants to come anywhere near the great and war, the great and pearly white shores of Britain, This is a program that teaches children never to trust people who look a bit weird, especially not if they're asking for sanctuary from a war that nearly wiped them out, because they're obviously criminals playing on our bleeding heart compassion and will always stab us in the back. This, circa 2005, can only be read as a party political broadcast for the British National Party. After two weeks of being really, really good, Doctor Who has become something sickening, twisted and wrong. I can't express how vile and awful this is, so I'll shut up soon. Sidebar, that was also erroneous. <laughs> All I know is that I wish the series had never come back rather than come back like this. Doctor Who these days isn't an ironic postmodern sci-fi show that only fantasy literate people watch. It's one of the highest rated programs on British TV. The program you want your children to see. The program that those children learn from without even knowing it. The program which has traditionally had a morality sharper than anyone else's. And a script like this in 2005 is as disgusting and as irresponsible as a program about big-eared, money-grubbing aliens with Yiddish accents would have been in the 1930s. No, a better comparison. Imagine an American TV show made in the late 60s, which claimed that dark-skinned aliens weren't quite smart enough to run their own society and thus shouldn't be allowed a vote. That's the kind of program we've been given tonight. Many of you may disagree because people of our sort 
tend to get distracted by big cosmic wars and such rather than looking at the message coming through underneath. But imagine you were watching this as a 10-year-old. What would you have learned today? I feel sick and betrayed. And God help me, if I weren't already committed to this series, then this would be the point at which I'd give up. And that's the end of Lawrence Miles' first of two blog posts about the unquiet dead. Um, yeah, what do we think of that? I think the feeling of um, shock, like, I guess, uh, ruined expectations, I think it, it comes through incredibly powerfully in what he wrote there. I think this is the kind of thing that only a fan with just deep investment in kind of Doctor Who and the ideas of Doctor Who, maybe even slightly idealised version of Doctor Who, could kind of express like with quite that level of ferocity i'm just dancing around like my actual opinions here like what do you guys think (laughs) i this is kind of a meta point not on the actual political points here but i'm just spellbound when he (laughs) when he says mark you're a thoughtless halfwit did you really think it was all right to write this (laughs) like it's just it's i'm not being like i'm not mocking uh miles here I, i i'm genuinely like wrapped by reading this because it's just such a rarity and it's I guess an absurdity. It's something you don't get. You don't actually get writers talking frankly about each other's stories like this. It's so rare. And it's happened a few times in Doctor Who. We had that time Stephen Moffat uh basically called Classic Who shit. <laughs> and like there's that Sayward interview I love as well where he got a bit too frank as well. I, I treasure these times because it's such a peek behind the curtain and it's you know great to see people be honest about the show it's so much better to lance that boil and you know that's the way the show can improve i think it's you know moffat talking frankly about what sucked about classic who in his view is of course part of why he could make the show in his own i was about to say why he could make the show better um, <coughs> i'm gonna be diplomatic in you know rephrase that uh as as fans i think it's glorious for us to read this because it's such a peek behind the curtain you know it's it's Lawrence Miles is a great writer of Doctor Who. Mark Gatiss is a writer of Doctor Who. It's great. <laughs> it's you know, it's great to see this honesty between writers like this. Um, so that enthralls me. Uh, I'm I'm not talking about the actual politics of what he's saying there. I just think the fact this exists at all. I agree with Gig that this it's the product of someone who cares about Doctor Who deeply. That's very obvious, and you can certainly argue he. Maybe cares too much is the wrong way, but you can argue it's an overreaction in the way that there's certainly stuff I talk about and I know other people are thinking, what the hell are you doing? You, you're, you're overreacting to such a small thing that you're reading such a huge political point out of. And I think sometimes you can argue, uh, it, but, but I think we, we kind of use episodes to talk about larger things as though where I think like, yeah, what he's saying here isn't just about the unquiet dead. It's a larger kind of point about the cultural impact of the show and Britain in 2005 that he's saying, which has been so, I think, muddled by, you know, the intervening years that it will seem kind of absurd to people now in ways that, you know, this stuff uh, I, I recorded, you know, during the very early days of COVID where I'm talking in a way that I might, I might even feel faintly embarrassed of now when it feels kind of hysterical, but it felt, it, it felt honest and real, you know, then. And I think we've kind of lost some of that context of what he's talking about. Although maybe we haven't. I mean, the issues he's talking about certainly haven't gone away. I think as we started by saying, and as um, a lot of the conversation around this reaction has focused on, Miles's tone is sort of wild. It's extremely direct, and I would certainly avoid using 
almost all the language he uses <laughs> yeah. in the post. But I think, despite the fact that I think there are a few good or decent, I suppose, counterpoints to what he's saying here, and and uh, you know, I've I've as people have heard, I'm I'm fond of the episode. I like it. I think it's good. Um, I think it's basically a good point he makes. Um, I I think it does come across certainly to certain audiences as quite a coherent anti-immigrant narrative i think the anti-immigrant narrative is probably the most coherent narrative you can get out of it and i don't think that's intentional like the post goes into and i don't necessarily agree with um you know the scornful direct insults um but i i think it's it's a an angle on the episode that you would hope wouldn't be there um and that might have, and I, I don't have enough information to say for sure, but might have done some real damage to the way people think about refugees in this country, which is, you know, sort of the defining issue right now, at least. I think there's ways you can take this and, you know, you can, it's, you can argue how Miles is framing this, but there's ways to take this as, you know, casting Mark Gatiss as a villain and there's ways to, talk about this which is just looking more at the impact of the episode itself like it's talking about um like like we're seeing this this wasn't the initial idea for the episode and we've seen how this all developed and i can certainly see how i think i think it's more important to talk about the effect of the episode basically than like the morality of the writer which i think is a very murky thing and it's not it's not like Gatiss just pours his heart on the page and all his politics, you know, spools out, especially because this episode had so many drafts, like we've talked about, and so many, you know, different creative visions, you know, incorporated into the episode. I, I, I think the parts where he talks about the function of the episode are more winning than the parts which are invective about Mark Gatiss as a writer and as a man. Uh, like, I think the point about the cultural context the episode is coming out in and the message that the episode is fairly clearly, I think, kind of trading in, in intentionally or otherwise. Uh, I think that's all very fair. But I don't think he does himself any favours by doing it. I mean, I understand it, but doing a very angry blog post on Maine, you know, on, on under his own <laughs> name. Um, like it, I, 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 I admire his kind of principles, you know, and I'm, I'm glad this exists in a lot of ways. But I'm, this caused him a lot of grief, you know, which which is a huge shame. This caused him a lot of stress, the blowback he got from this. And it's it's just difficult because I, I agree with him that I think there is an abhorrent uh, political narrative in the episode. Well, do, do you think this reflects a um, prejudice and underlying like skepticism or hatred of refugees on Gatiss's part? That's an honest question. I'm not like asking that just for us to say no to. Do you think this reflects some kind of uh, cultural biases in Gatiss? Or do you think it's just kind of a, um arbitrary thing of just how the alien story evolved i think what it is is that the gelf are a rubbish doctor who villain and yeah. they go in because I mean, and the crap subtext comes with that as part of the package and it goes in because it's the done thing and it ends up in the episode because that's just how it works and no one is no one is scanning it or particularly worried about whether any of the crap subtext is going in there or whether it matters or whether anyone cares because i think perhaps quite um 
correctly or accurately, they're going to assume that people will just interpret this as a rubbish Doctor Who villain. Because the, the cultural biases that lead the crap subtext to be in there are the same ones that are inculcated in the populace in general. And it's just... Exactly. You know, the, the, the show is almost part of the audience that's receiving it. In a way, it's just the, the it's not. Yeah, that's yeah. It's not something that that just feeds one way into the culture. It's also a product. It's reciprocal, right? So it's all swirling around. You can't separate one thing from the other. So I think asking about whether I think asking making it about Gatiss, I think is asking the wrong question, really. And I think it's more about what Doctor Who is, what is considered a a convention of Doctor Who. And I think it's why maybe Mars's idealization of the past of Doctor Who is maybe a bit, uh, maybe a bit where he veers slightly. I think maybe because that. That's what produces the most, like, aggrieved reaction from him. The idea yeah. that something that was pure and good has gone wrong, has gone downhill. Whereas I think maybe that's not the most realistic view, if you see what I mean. The idea that this is more racist than Talons. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. Classic Who was often very racist. That shouldn't be a particular shock. And the idea that this is a sudden swerve into... I think that's exactly the issue. I think... Uh, I, I'm, I'm not particularly interested in trying to divine specifically what Mark Gattis thinks on specific political issues, but I think tying together his, uh, his impulses as a writer, especially the Victoriana and the adoring approach to the past, um, and the way that that meets with his, um, uncritical, maybe, um, version of Doctor Who is, is, is in, Inherently conservative, but not in the sense that he is writing an anti-immigrant narrative because of subconscious conservative biases that make him write that. I think it's more that he is writing a story that dwells in these themes and his conservative storytelling biases rely on a traditional version of Doctor Who, which, because of the mingling social and cultural and political... um, aspects of the dna of doctor who that uncritical reproduction of a classic doctor who beat carries with it a a a conservative and anti-immigrant perspective that is sort of baked into the dna of the show and gets into this episode through what doctor who is rather than through gattis's particular views as a writer you see it all the time that doctor who episodes by the nature of the fact that they need to be a doctor who episode end up having appalling politics right yeah something that i kind of want to bring up in relationship to that is that um i mean one reason it's so refreshing to read miles's blog post is that it's nice to see fury about a doctor who episode that is about something that matters Mm. and not something ridiculous like oh no you've portrayed the doctor compiling the tardis wrong you've painted the (laughs) the wrong color oh that you haven't respected the time lord's law you know shit like that is you know you know fury around doctor who is usually around stuff that doesn't matter so something like this where you have quite a new context of the show being revived for a mass audience, super popular, you know, circumstances that haven't been seen for a very long time. To have uh, a context like that, and for someone to write a post like this, where they are really just ripping in to the idea of what that show is necessarily 
or perhaps potentially saying to its audience to just to really rip open this wound, this idea that the subtext of the show could actually be a really dangerous or threatening thing that needs to be thought about and scrutinized really closely in terms of what it's saying about society and the world and life. And the idea that there'd be a moral dimension to that. I mean, it must have been such a system shock when it mm. hit back in 2005, when this review landed. Mm. I mean, it must have, I mean, it, it, it feels like quite normal now because we've had decades of people cancelling Moffat and RTD and all that stuff. And obviously stuff I've written about Jim, you know, we, it's very familiar by now. You know, I, I related to Miles so hard reading his yeah. books about this. But um, I, I think back then, this must have been quite, a, quite an epoch making kind of status quo change just to i think just it must have been i'm not saying this is necessarily the first time anyone's thought about like written about doctor who like this but just in terms of it being the new revival of doctor who and someone just going out there putting out there we need and just saying publicly we need to think about the show like this i mean that, that was just huge and the insane backlash to the post yeah. kind of is explained by that. Just the fact it was an utter disruption to the whole sphere. And I think also the fact that it was so, that something like this was so new is kind of also kind of explains how an episode like The Unquiet Dead kind of happens because people weren't necessarily thinking about Doctor Who like that until, you know, you get this massive controversy over it that Miles unleashes. And there's a lot to reply to that first yeah sorry i talked <laughs> no, no that's no it's, it's it's great rtd in 2018 talking about how episode three felt like it's such a precipice for the show i think you can see why everyone to be clear i condemn this and i think it's actually i think it was really awful how all this got handled but you can see why everyone kind of closed ranks to uh condemn mm. uh miles because i think there was such a fear that series one wasn't going to, the show wasn't going to continue or, you know, the show felt still like Eccleston leaving and all that coming out made everyone, you know, feel very insecure about the show. You know, I, I wasn't aware of any of this Lawrence Miles stuff as an 11 year old, but I was aware of Eccleston leaving and, you know, that all being so weird and the show feeling like it was in a weird place and everything. So I think, well, what I think happened is kind of the same thing on both sides here where people kind of, maybe they treated Miles kind of as a symbol of like an attack on the show. And so they, kind of ignored the humanity of what he was expressing uh, to. And I mean, he, 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 there's so much invective in here that I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a wrong response to be offended by it and to, you know, push back on him for that. But I think, especially in, this wouldn't have happened, in 2008, the show was in a very different stage. But in 2005, I think there was such a need to be protective about the show or at least a perceived need to be protective about it that the, the hardline response to him, I think, was partly born out of that, if you guys know what I mean. Like, they were very protective of the baby at this time, basically, with Doctor Who. But was what he was saying heard? Like, the RTD era kept doing a lot of stuff like this, I think. And I, I think there's stuff we haven't really had the conversations really on yet. Like, there's something in turn left, which I don't see people talk about much at all, which I think is crazy, and that, you know, people just, like, let slide. And so, I think... We, I, I, I think you need stuff like this, even if it's written too edgily or too much invective. This is a healthy part of the show, basically, in my view, I think, to get stuff like this because it's born out of someone taking the show seriously and, you know, not just treating the show as a product but actually talking about its cultural force. It's born out of respect for the show and in some ways it's born out of too much respect for the show, like we're talking about the kind of idolization of classic Who. But I don't... I While... A lot of how he's written this is, I think you can argue, unhealthy. I don't think 
the fact this exists is unhealthy. And I think in a broader way, this is healthy, what this is, which is, you know, to analyze the show politically and critically like this. I think he's done it in such an edgely way that he's made life harder for himself. But this sort of thing existing, like Gig was saying, we can all relate to, I think sometimes we kind of use episodes or writers almost as like symbols for larger cultural forces or cultural issues. And I think you can read a lot of reasons into why. Maybe it's that we all feel like Doctor Who is our home ground. Like I know Lawrence Miles has talked about that before. Like Doctor Who is our native language that we understand so well that we feel very comfortable talking in the Doctor Who language and talking about Doctor Who's history almost like in a metonymical way for real history. And so I feel like there's this kind of comfort in we can confront the issue of, you know, racism towards asylum seekers by calling Mark Gatiss nasty names, which, you know, I think is misguided in a lot of ways, but I can understand where he's coming from. And I think that's what Gig was kind of getting at talking about, um, you know, some of the writings on Chibnall in that, like, it's, it's, not, it's not that we don't believe what we're saying, but it's that it's kind of symbolic. Or it's kind of a safer way or an easier way or a more comfortable way for us to talk about wider cultural issues or more faceless cultural issues. Do you know, do you kind of get what I'm getting at? In saying that? I think so. I think that diverting conversations that could be uncritical escapism about uncritical escapism uh, into political questions is important as a thing to do, especially when, I mean, in this case, I think Miles would certainly say that the original episode itself threw the first political punch by being intentionally or otherwise... Um, about bad immigrants uh and so dissecting that and making sure that you're holding the show to account or any media to account is sort of the least you can do and it's not that like you say it's not that this individual episode's politics individually changes however many kids minds about whatever individual political issue. And it's not even necessarily about making better Doctor Who in the future that has better politics, although that would certainly be nice. It's more about actually having that conversation, actually talking about it and what it means, um, and making sure that the people who are part of your community think critically about issues that it's important to think critically about. Um and uh, and yeah, beyond anything, it's an excuse to have the conversation about how uh, asylum seekers and refugees are presented in fantasy media, which is badly, almost always. You know, I do think, as well as the inherent defensiveness about a seemingly precarious state of the show that, you know, you mentioned, Neo, and the kind of people's fear over anyone attacking it, I do think um a lot of the ways in which Miles' post was interpreted as slandering Gatiss, threatening Gatiss, <laughs> and sort of like, oh, you're writing death threats to Gatiss, oh, I'm cancelling you, 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 oh, the, oh, you got an email from the publisher, you're blooming, uh, your, your error checker has removed himself from the project, you're damaging sales, it's all, it's all over. I do think a lot of that really furious backlash is also, it's also to do with the fact that it's specifically racism, because I think inherently, by writing a post in which he implies that something Mark Gatiss wrote had this racist subtext, even though he says he doesn't think it was intentional on uh, Gatiss's part. I think, like, that must have been interpreted by people as, he's calling Gatiss a racist. Oh my god! He's impugned Gatiss. He, he, he has profaned Gatiss. Uh, because, as we all know, a lot of pe- a lot of times, 
when you say that someone did something racist, it's interpreted as like, oh my god, this is just another form of racism. You calling someone racist is the worst thing you could ever do. <laughs> oh my god, this is so bad. And I just think like the just uh, <laughs> I think he he poked he poked a hornet's nest. I think by delving into that issue that I just think that the fandom was just so like not ready or like willing or prepared to actually deal with or like grapple with. So I think he he really um. I think he broke new ground in a way that I'm I'm honestly really thankful for. Like it's just he, you know, he he kicked that hornet's nest. He did it, and you know he 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 bore some really quite unpleasant, horrible consequences. But uh, you know, I I think I'm glad he was that brave at least. I don't want to get too far off topic, but it does feel like one of those the the conservative and reactionary response to people talking about racism especially systemic racism or or implicit racism has so often and so successfully focused on 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 saying oh they're saying you're a racist Hmm. anyone Hmm. criticizing this institution is calling you as a person a racist person as if there's a binary between the people who are and aren't racist and as in uh, assuming that there's no more to a system or in this case a work of art than the 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 author itself um or i don't think even though like i've said i think i think the, the language is inflammatory maybe not helpful although maybe that was necessary to get some attention on the piece who knows but reacting to um a post like this by saying that oh don't be silly mark gaddis isn't a racist a misses the point entirely and b as if as if a and Mark Gaddis, don't don't take this wrong, but as if a writer steeped in Victoriana um, doesn't have some element in their work that does inherit a cultural bias. That that's I think that's obviously true, and I think that calling that out like this is important. That's you know writing fantasy or sci-fi in general. There's such a just the foundational tropes of so much of this stuff. It's not. It's what really frustrates me with this because i think it's so infantile is i had like a personal little utopia moment like a personal little mind-blown realization back in 2016 online i just saw some post which was just you know when people make these kind of cringe inducing um you know those people who argue oh you know media has no effect on you and things don't make you this way then they proceed to make like anime character video game character epic speeches and all their writings (laughs) online uh, it was one of those type of things where, you know, someone is saying they can call us racist and they can call us misogynists, but, you know, we've been called things all our lives. We were bullied in schools and it's all going to, you know, roll off us because we know blah, blah, blah. And We are gamers. We are legions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, but what blew my mind there was I realized the way they were saying it, like they, they can call us racists. They can call us misogynists. It's and it, it, like you're being equivocated to this is just like when I was called four eyes at school because what I hadn't really fully thought through beforehand or come to this abrupt realization of was that people receive some of these words in a way where it is just like an insult like to be called a racist is to be called like you are a bad person you are a four eyes you are a geek it's just like an insult you are the bad thing rather than it being a specific rather than it being the verb you know rather than you've 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 executed something that's racist rather than you've done something that's racist it's that 
you are, you know, the bad noun. You are, you know, a term we're bullying you for. And it just blew my mind to think that that these it's 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 just it's it's like two entirely separate conversations being happened. Like someone might be called a racist or a misogynist, and they're not it's not being perceived or not being channeled in the way that the that someone's expressing it or they're receiving it as that thing you did or that thing you said was racist. And because of this, it's that they're they're perceiving this as this kind of noise of we're insulting you because we are the socially conscious side and you are the socially unconscious side and we will hurl these interchangeable insults at you is the way it's kind of perceived, uh, which blew my mind. But it made a lot of the stuff make more sense to me now. Even just that phrase kind of a racist, uh, it, it carries this whole connotation of like an interchangeability. Like you are... You, you can change it to something else. You are a a misogynist. You are a whatever. It's it's just like this kind of blind insult is the way it kind of gets delivered or perceived as. And so this idea that Mark Gatiss is a racist is like this unconscionable insult. Like uh, Lawrence Miles, you know, it's 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 like a witch hunt thing. It's like it's how it's being perceived. Lawrence Miles said Mark Gatiss is the bad bad man that we all need to crucify or whatever, uh, which. Even with the invective that he's delivered it with, I don't think is what's happening here. He's saying specifically, you know, that this episode channeled a negative or to his mind racist cultural narrative, which is bad because it plays badly with, you know, the culture in Britain at the time. And like that that's not calling for Mark Gatiss to be strung up, even with the invective in there. And I still find it so bizarre that this kind of stuff gets interpreted that way. Like to call out you know, if I say, well, I don't think Chibnall handled, you know, so-and-so element of Ryan so well. It's, well, you think he's um, ableist? You think he's an ableist? You know, you don't like how Rosa was handled? You think he's a racist? Like, it's, I'm not, I'm not God. I'm not judging the totality of these men. You know, I'm not weighing them up on the scales to decide if they get into heaven or hell. And I find that such a weird conversation-ending reaction to have. You know, it's like, rather than have any of the conversations about these issues you know that could channel into doing things differently or into framing things differently or whatever it's well we're putting him on the scale are you saying he's a racist or not like oliver says it's a totally binary thing it's is he going to heaven or is he going to hell are you saying he's going to hell are you saying you know <laughs> chris chibnall is a racist and therefore he's going to hell is like how it gets perceived if you just try and raise well i think he mishandled this thing and i wish he'd done it differently and it does the thing i hate which is that it ends conversations doesn't it and then nothing can change if the conversation's ended if we can't actually talk about the refugee narrative and the unquiet dead, we're going to get dodgy things in the RTD era as it goes on, as we did. So I just, I hate this anti-intellectual, uh, total conversation ending view where instead of like saying this, there's a racist tendency in this, let's talk about it. It's you're saying he's a racist. You're trying to send him to hell and therefore we need to shut you out and do everything we can to shut you up. But it's just, it's so infantile and ridiculous to me. Yes, it's that willful reduction of the conversation to something that's easier to process. Yeah. yeah. Have you noticed that, again, off topic, have you noticed that the word woke, despite being by any definition an adjective, has just started being used as a noun? Yeah. It doesn't work as. It doesn't work. The word doesn't. It's not like the word racist, which grammatically works as both, but the need for that reaction to be able to blur together the idea that your action or your product or the system you're a part of is racist has to also come with the implication that you personally are racist because that's essential to the to to 
to to make the reaction hold, to get people angry at anybody who's trying to critique systemic issues. And again, woke is uh, just just blurs all the all social concerns into one. Just some vague Yep, an all purpose slur for anything and everything. Yeah. It's if if I if someone wrote an invective full article about me calling out, you know, something I'd written as, you know, contributing to something horrible in the culture. Like I I I would feel, you know, such a mix of emotions. I'm sure I'd feel so much shame and so much anger and like confusion. I'm sure I'd feel all this cocktail of things. And so I don't know if what Miles wrote is like the most effective thing to get the reaction out of Gatus, but it's not meant to be because this isn't like a conversation between two men. This is also, this is a conversation about a wider thing in the culture that he's talking about. And it's a conversation about an episode of TV, like you said, that is a huge cultural force already this early into New Who's reign. So it's, I'm not I'm, I'm not unsympathetic to like, I'm sure this was a big stress to Gatiss, but it was also a big stress to Miles, you know, the kind of maybe disproportionate response that was to it as well. I don't know. I feel like it's kind of a responsibility of being a success. I think the responsibility of being the huge cultural force that it became of Doctor Who is that you don't want to be channeling things you don't want to channel, basically. And I don't think Gatiss or RTD wanted to channel anything anti-refugee like this. As um, as Miles put it in his follow-up post, he says, writers have a duty to get this kind of thing right, no excuses. Yeah. That's kind of his very hard-line stance there, I think. Like, when there's something that this big and that successful... Like, uh, you know, even if it's just thoughtlessness or ignorance or whatever, that's not necessarily an excuse. That, that doesn't make it all fine. That doesn't neutralize everything. That's the flip side of how we looked at, you know, how teary Gatiss was about how much it meant to him for this episode to happen and to be good and everything. And that's great. And that is the responsibility then. You've made a huge success. You've made something that so many people are going to watch and you've made something, you know, strong and that's going to be remembered. And, you know, part of the duty of that is to try not to... <laughs> and we try not to channel anti-refugee narratives too intuitively into your episode and i know um you know kill the moon comes to mind which you know people can is popularly read in a certain way where a lot of the fans say it's not there at all and the writer says it's not there at all you know with the abortion readings but you know, i'm just lob- i don't actually have a reading i'm just lobbing that moon grenade in here for you guys to <laughs> respond to <laughs> i think it's a I, I I like Kill the Moon a lot, but I think it's a fair reading that more um more care should have been taken. I think the Eratorium post says something like you know, good intentions, this is what happens when you've got male writers doing all the writing about Doctor Who in general. You you're gonna get accidental reads like this that and I, I think that's fair. And I think a wider thing, which kind of relates to the whole Unquiet Dead thing, because I guess one counterpoint that maybe you might see raised to Miles's um, argument is that, well, you know, how how do you know that any kids took it racistly or badly? You know, I mean, I, there is one quite uh, full length um, counter argument to Miles's post that someone wrote. I'm not going to uh, name it, but I, I can try and do my best to represent it fairly. Which is that the idea is that the idea in this counter argument is that essentially viewers watching the show are able to understand that even though the the girl turned out to be bad or whatever it's just um it's just a 
quirk of the episode and it's not necessarily actually like a it's not a real statement or concerted statement on the part of the episode or the author and um and so, so, so very, there are various points like that saying well you know it doesn't it doesn't even if it, we don't know if it really affected anyone badly and i think the issue is even if we don't know for sure like it's still out there like the a, a text like an episode is out there for anyone to think anything about and obviously you know we can't <laughs> you can't control what people are going to think about the work but if you've put the ingredients there then you're encouraging certain things and if it's possible then we need to think about it isn't it like even if we don't have like like written testimony from someone saying that this episode made me racist you know it's still something that's there and it's just going to be floating there you know there's no point leaving it alone and i think the i think that idea that um that it's fundamentally a quirk of the episode and just sort of how the logic of doctor who's story bears out in this story isn't causally untrue you know i think that it probably came about in the episode because that's sort of how Doctor Who stories work. But A, I don't think that that's... I think that's indicative of a deeper conservativeness in the storytelling. And B, it really is a dreadfully coherent anti-immigrant narrative. Miles makes a lot of deeper points than just that... um, just that, you know, the refugees turn out to be bad guys. The... I think the framing of the Doctor and Rose's argument ending with is implicitly Rose being right. I think that's a fair read on that section. I I think you can hold together a really coherent anti-immigrant argument, which means people are going to have thought that. You know, it's uh, to to an audience that, as RTD boasts, is so ridiculously large, even three episodes in somebody is going to interpret the ingredients like you say in the episode in a way that they can be interpreted and writers should be aware of that gig pulled out a bit from it i want to pull out some other bits from the follow-up post he wrote which was a couple of days later uh so before aliens of london aired still just a couple of days after the unquiet dead this one's quite long so i'm not reading all of it i'll just read some bits from it uh but it opens with this world terrifies me i have to make this personal because that's the only way of getting through it it's hard to believe now that there was a time when i felt optimistic a time when a lot of us felt optimistic 10 years ago everything seemed to be going in the right direction britain seemed to be heading for one of those chip shop renaissances i was talking about in the last interrant the counterculture was on the way up the neo-nazi subculture which did so well in the early 1990s was on the way down the venal disease riddled government was on the way out The internet was shiny and new and made us temporarily believe that the coming era of freedom of information would lead to great things as well as free porn and places for physics students to hang out. People were more aware, more alert, more tolerant, and more culture literate than at any time in our prior history. Even postmodernism looked interesting instead of obvious. We thought we were finally in for something good. Didn't quite happen that way, did it? Uh, Gen X annoys me a lot. (laughs) Sometimes. Um... (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, scrolling down a bit, he talks more about generational malaise and stuff like that. He talks about how now we're meaner, pettier, more bigoted, more complacent, more immoral, but we're safe. All around us, the sense of evil in the world is sharper and darker than at any point in living memory, yet we don't have to think about that. Even to have a strong opinion is seen as in some way unsafe, certainly unfashionable, certainly unwanted. It terrifies me. 
I'm naturally a terrified person. In this past week, I've been called, not for the first time, an... How do I pronounce this right, Gig? Enfant terrible. <laughs> you, have to, you have to roll your R. Just the enfant and terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm 33 years old and I'm scared to turn on the television. And he says he suspects, he suspects that term for him in this sense just means he has a big mouth. If you want to know how I see the world, then sod it. There's no other way of getting this across. Imagine one of those sci-fi dramas where the monsters have set up a psychic illusion that makes everybody see a paradise and all the people walk around grinning their stupid faces off. But one character isn't affected and perceives everything as being rotting flesh and disembodied brains. That's, this, that's the world. Unremitting horror disguised. The earth is vicious and untrustworthy under a thin veneer of computer graphics and cheap DVDs. So yes, I'm scared and I'm paranoid and I don't feel as if there's anybody I can talk to about it anymore. Um, as an opening to like a Doctor Who related kind of post, I mean, that's, <laughs> it's, he's straight away in there with this is incredibly personal. I mean, I kind of, I love this whole piece of writing that he does here because it's such a, it's such a window into his head and it's such a deeply emotive and kind of personal just expression of like the alienation he feels and just the the like the horror he feels that the just <laughs> just like both the world and just the, the society surrounding him and just everything in general it's kind of solid it's could you accuse it of being you could accuse it of being solipsist is that where you're thinking yeah that i find that a bit um Certainly that whole opening where like, oh, everything seemed good in 1995. <laughs> it's like, you can clearly see that like a potentially chauvinistic perspective there. Because yeah. obviously there are a lot of people in the world for whom things didn't seem like they were on the up and up in 1995. Inclu in you know, including, like, you can bring it into the refugee thing. and it's Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he says, this brings us to the night of Saturday, the 9th of April, 2005. <laughs> the night that Doctor Who became as terrible and as terrifying as everything else in the world. Though not for the traditional rear of furniture reasons. At least the walking corpse makes a proper screaming sound this time. This is bad in the bad way. I can't explain in any meaningful sense exactly what happened to me on the night of the unquiet dead. Or the talons of Kilroy Silk, as I now tend to think of it. I think it's the principle of the figurehead means more than the crew. You can hear about millions dying of plague or famine and you only accept it as a bad thing in a statistical sense. But when you hear about American soldiers shooting dead a rare tiger in Baghdad Zoo, then it comes a damn sight closer to making you cry. However appalling the world now seems, the sheer sense of betrayal in watching it happen to something you grew up with? No, I'll come to that. Since I posted the first review of The Unquiet Dead, it's been suggested that it was written with some kind of personal agenda in mind. It's been implied that this was a willful, finely honed attack, probably with an ulterior motive. Parentheses. Why do people always assume I've got ulterior motives? I never have ulterior motives. That's my whole problem. If I were capable of guile, then I'd be the one writing television programs by now. <laughs> or more probably living in a villa in the south of France and running an internet. Anyway. That's very insightful. <laughs> I may have forgotten that on the internet, things work in terms of clicks, counter clicks, e diplomacy, and rabble rousing. I may have forgotten that sheer rage, other than. All caps. The thing which I believe is called shouting by users of news groups doesn't necessarily carry well. There's no smiley for hurting. Nonetheless, then he reposts his uh, initial blog post that we've talked about. And then he says, so this is what happens next. I post the review on the internet within an hour of the program finishing. Within another hour, I've been told that I might want to reconsider the threats against Mark Gatiss. 
before letting it be known that it's there. Within an hour of that, I'm starting to pick up feedback and the anger is being replaced by paranoia, the lurching, sick-making sense that the world is getting smaller again or that it's only me who can feel what's happening or that I can't tell the difference between friends and enemies or that I'm fighting something I can't see or that I'm fighting something that doesn't even exist. I start to swing between being indignant. No, this man has written the most divisive thing on television since the days of Love Thy Neighbor and I will stand firm. And fear. I have no idea how the internet really works. I have no idea how much I'm supposed to have said out loud. I believe everything I said, but I don't have the strength to stand by it. I get drunk. I take the review offline. I go to bed with half of my personality telling me that I'm a sodding coward and that this is one of the few times in my life when I've really meant something and it really had to be said. The other half is hoping that hardly anybody saw it before I got rid of it. The next day, I put it back online with the swearing taken out. I try to watch the repeat of The Unquiet Dead on BBC3, but it hurts. I can't go through with this. I didn't realize it until after I'd written The Deer Tribe, but I think I know why I reacted so badly. This is... (laughs) God, he's phrasing here for the Faction Paradox fans. This is, without exception, the first time that Doctor Who has ever been the enemy. There are certain things in the old series which seem briefly objectionable, as you'd expect in something that ran for over two decades. The odd hint of non-ironic British imperialism, the occasional touch of misogyny, Mm. the vague hint that the death penalty is some kind of natural justice, the self-indulgence of the sunmakers. But this is the first time that an entire storyline has been positively opposed to anything that I'd recognise as good. The first time, at least on TV, that Doctor Who has been vicious, brutal and nasty. And as far as I can gather, those responsible just think it's funny. Uh, Sidebar, this is the the solipsism that I'm talking about. Like, I... I really disagree with what he's... I think this is a very insular, idealized vision of classic who he's delivering here. I think it I think it undercuts a lot of the otherwise, you know, stronger points he's making. That to, like, See, the thing is, he even... He references Talons earlier when he yeah. made, made yeah. the quip about thinking yeah. of it being like Talons. But, like, he, in this whole passage, he just goes through... Like really minimizing the issues with classic who. I think I think maybe maybe it's a product of the time thing. Like even people who were willing to call out Doctor Who for its racism weren't necessarily thinking of specific classic who stories in that with that uh, closer lens. I guess so to be able to just like brush it off. Oh, like an occasional hint of imperialism, <laughs> just a hint. Yeah, I, <laughs> you know? like now that seems absolutely hilarious to us. Touch of misogyny. I, I understand he's feeling like scared, and you know reasonably i think absolutely i understand his emotions here but i think he's undercutting the points which kind of stood stronger when he left him alone in his first post it because it is it's so clearly framing everything now in terms of his own personal relationship to doctor who where he was younger when he watched classic who and it was all good and now he's older and he's not part of it because he can't schmooze with the rest of them and therefore mark gatus is writing it instead and mark gatus has made it evil it just i think it's I think the refugee point when he was being specific on the politics actually was well argued and you know I basically agree with it but when he's like here he's bringing it all to his own internal history of the show I think it um it 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 it, it I I feel sad for him here you know which I don't think is a great strengthening of the political savaging the thing about his earlier kind of they live analogy where only one person can see through the brainwashing and see the real horror of the world i mean i think a lot of people probably feel that way about british culture being just a thinly veiled disguise for absolute plunder and colonial horrors and all sorts of things i mean that's not that's not particularly inaccurate fundamentally but i think that sense of isolation of being the only one who can see through the illusion it's just it makes you feel 
isolated, scared, paranoid. You know, it, it's it's a horrible thing to feel, I think. And fundamentally, obviously, no one is actually the only person who can see through it. Yeah. But the feeling that you are the only person is just fundamentally makes you feel awful. I won't read all the next paragraph, but it basically it connects to loads of stuff we've been saying. He says, I realized that I had to say what I said because because why? Because evil must be fought? Maybe not. Because I know that even though I'm strictly minor league, I'm at least vaguely noticeable. And because what I've seen can't be allowed to stand unchallenged. Because the debate about the unquiet dead being unacceptable television has to start straight after its broadcast. This isn't a small point. This isn't a tele-historical footnote that can be glossed over easily. When they write the definitive textbook on 21st century Doctor Who, blah, 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 then let them write this. For the next two days after the unquiet dead was transmitted, the top story on the news was the immigration issue, with the Daily Mail running a front-page headline about a secret government conspiracy to allow illegal immigrants to disappear into British society unnoticed, blah, blah, blah. In Britain, April 2005, it's the only issue there is. Uh, I, I think that's a good point. I think that's, you know, back to the cultural context, I think. Uh, yeah, I think that's a very good point. Yeah, so that, that, that kind of point of view where viewing Doctor Who stories in terms of what is happening in the real world at the time it aired, it maybe wasn't that popular at the time, but it's certainly become more popular since, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For reasons. It's one of the ways um, I've, be, I've been thinking the whole time about Kablam, and we've not mentioned it. But it, in the same way that uh, Kablam hits that note of of corporate worship specifically in the context of horror stories uh coming out of um warehouses uh, of, of the company for which kablam is a direct parallel um that idea that what's in the news right now informs what the audience watching right now are going to be thinking when they see your episode and when you defend a system that is in the news every day uh your the effect is worse than if you were making some um negative political point out of that context it's a particularly important issue when when it's the headline for the next several days afterwards and, and it's that cultural feedback loop like gig was talking about where it's uh it reproduces part of the culture and then it swims back into the culture uh which which i, which I think is miles taking the show seriously as part of the culture rather than just treating it as, you know, a silly old resuscitation of the, the, the idealized show that they all loved as kids. In the very non-idealized life of Miles at this point, he says, back to Sunday evening, I've convinced myself that I was right. Uh, then he goes into his emails, his inbox is flooded, and he gets scared uh, because some of the emails look angry. Some of them look as if they're carrying letter bombs. He thinks he's not strong enough for this fight. He thinks he's a asterisk, 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 asterisk moralist. Uh, he's terrified to open his emails. Um, so he deletes all his, I'm paraphrasing now, he deletes all his emails without reading them. Uh, the next day he goes out to try and feel like he's not under siege and to look at the headlines. Um, when he gets home, he has three phone calls from someone wanting to talk about the review. <laughs> he considers calling back and explaining that no, he can't talk about it because the fuss about the review has become the threshold of the hostile, incomprehensible world that he's currently having so much trouble with, but he doesn't. He takes the phone off the hook and plans on leaving it that way for the rest of the week. And then in his words, he says, the fuss, as far as I can pick it up from the people he does speak to, seems to be based not on what he thought of the episode, but on what he said about Mark Gatiss. And this puzzles him for a while since the review was written in a red haze and then trimmed while drunk. 
he doesn't remember the exact wording. So he goes back and he looks and it still puzzles him. He's asked the theoretical web surfing Gatus what the hell he thinks he's doing, whether he thinks he can write this kind of thing without anyone objecting. And then he says, it takes me a while to realize the problem. I've been writing on the internet in the same way I'd normally talk to people. And that includes people who've pissed me off. I'd have no problem saying this to Gatus's face because it's true and he needs to be told. As a writer, although of less importance, I'd expect the same treatment. If an author screws up, then he's culpable. Culture isn't a game of knockdown ginger. You can't tell a story with a dangerous moral in front of 10 million people and then run away. He goes on to say two ironies strike him. One, he wouldn't have any hesitation about telling Gatus this to his face, but he's afraid to read emails from other people talking about it. Parentheses, because he's another writer and thus a non-civilian, I'm not sure. Two, if I wouldn't give him the chance to run away after writing something reckless, then how can I feel justified in running away from people who want to talk to me about what I wrote? Um, it's kind of difficult to talk about this without psychoanalyzing because he's psychoanalyzing himself at this point. It feels like a like a live feed of everything that was kind of happening to him. It's like, yeah, just emotionally. It's a stream of consciousness. He says, I open the next few emails that I get, but they're mostly from people agreeing from him. One old acquaintance tells him, his reaction to the episode, uh, and he wants to know if he can be introduced to Mark Gatiss and whether he can shake Gatiss's hand to congratulate the writer for telling it like it is in a fake British National Party thug voice and then ask, when are you going to have a go at those bloody gays as well? And this makes, Loz, this makes Lawrence Miles laugh. Then Miles gets an email from his publisher. The publisher tells him to shut up because he's damaging future sales of about time. About time are those um, like... Uh, the, the, these, these great books, Miles, at least did the first couple with another writer, Tatwood, uh, where they go through each episode of Doctor Who and they go through all like the kind of database type of book stuff about it. But they also put in all these really intriguing little mini essays about the show and everything. That, they're really interesting reads. I wish Miles had done all of them, not just the first couple. Anyway, uh, he says his publisher also tells him that one of the American error checkers has removed himself from the About, the about Time project and asked for his name to be taken off the credits because he doesn't want to be associated with someone capable of making slanderous aspersions. The indignant half of Loz wants to point out that it isn't sure it wants to be associated with Doctor Who at all anymore, especially when it glances at the TV and sees Michael Howard telling the world that Tony Blair has been letting evil terrorists into the country on the sly. The scared half of Loz, on the other hand, wonders how many more people it can hurt. This is the point at which half of me starts crying, largely the outside. This is <laughs> this has been happening a lot recently, though it's been a while since it's been caused by anything quite so selfish. Uh, he thinks it's ridiculous that an episode of Doctor Who has set all this off. He talks about how he's recently been diagnosed as schizophrenic. Uh, he bets people that used to call him Mad Larry at the Fitzroy Tavern are feeling stupid now. Um, he talks more about his diagnosis. He starts thinking about Lord Byron. Um, he starts thinking about how he's half an outspoken idealist, but half a frightened neurotic virgin in the equivocation with Byron that is doing with himself. Uh, he says, I wish I didn't have a conscience. I wish I didn't care about anyone, or at least I wish I only cared about people in theory so I could get on with the job of being a zealot without having to think about the looks in other people's eyes when they get caught in the crossfire. He talks more about ways he wishes he was different. He talks about his body. The email from my publisher includes the words, even if you retracted, and I wonder if this is a thinly veiled suggestion, but I can't back down from this. I can't. Either I regret nothing or I have to regret even caring. Well, maybe I can regret one detail. 
maybe I should have included a it doesn't even look deliberate clause. Even those who've agreed with me have said something along the lines of, mind you, I don't think Gatiss is actually a racist, as if it needed to be said. I'm fairly sure Gatiss isn't. I'm fairly sure it was just careless, sloppy thinking, his usual habit of making everything in the universe as unpleasant as possible, but this time missing the fairly bleeding obvious subtext of what he was writing. It was thoughtless. Uh, And then he talked about how that's not uncommon for people to be thoughtless writing, but like Gig quoted, the episode can only be read right here and right now as party politically nasty. Writers have a duty to get this kind of thing right. No excuses. It goes on for quite a while longer, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, this. I don't even know how to characterize it. It is a. It is a blog post, isn't it? This is. This isn't a review. This is truly a blog. He talks about why didn't RTD notice the problem. He talks about time in the Rani. He talks <laughs> about. <laughs> so what's the what? Well, he, he says blah blah blah. In terms of drama, this works as dynamic. It guarantees that a certain amount of fear and anxiety will always be there. Which what's what what guarantees it? I think he's just talking. He, um, he's talk about how the nature of Doctor Who is that it in it envisions the universe as a place steeped in death, where things are inherently untrustworthy. You know, people are corrupt. There's lots of like cloak and dagger and suspicion, and people people are dangerous, right? And that's the dynamic that generates you know drama, anxiety, fear. But also leads to, you know, subtext like this. And he says it at least saves us from a repeat of Time in the Rani, which is a story which doesn't have much in the way of, like, a, a dynamic to it at all. Ah, okay. And that Davies has no problem with the idea of outsiders all being evil, and Gatiss has always been obsessed with horror and death. And so that's, you know, how this stuff is mixed. In Loz's words, yes, I should have put I know he's not a Nazi, but somewhere in the review, but then as far as I'm concerned, an irresponsible writer is a bad enough thing to be, saying he just didn't think what he was doing doesn't make him look much better. The result is a bunch of people asking if he's, you know, a personal vendetta with Gatiss and if he's looking for a fight. He says, I've never met Gatiss and he liked some of his previous work and he was ambivalent with some other of his previous work. Publisher says, it sounds like Loz is calling out Gatiss. Well, of course I am. Isn't that what writers are supposed to do? (laughs) William S. Burroughs and his mates were at each other's throats all the time, haranguing each other about their duties to the written word. That's how it's meant to work, I'm sure. And he starts getting angry again. Someone's done a bad thing, has done a bad thing to the TV psyche, the nation, and done a bad thing to Doctor Who. And so Loz has a right to talk about that. Yet people are objecting to it. No, 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 no. You can't deny your responsibilities. You can't spread dirt and then claim to be sacrosanct. This man has made 10 million people listen and then delivered a hateful message just like at school when they told you in assembly that you shouldn't complain when things aren't fair because life isn't fair. Um, Loz talks, you know, more about being embittered and feeling this is unjustified. Uh, he's trying not to think of the end of Genesis of the Daleks. If Gatiss wanted pity, then he shouldn't have written script about pity being a weakness. Blah, blah, blah. Russell T. Davies. Later in the evening, he watches a documentary about the Industrial Revolution. He says that no one knows why the printing press only became popular in the contented Muslim world 300 years after it took Christian Europe by storm. But perhaps it was... The nature of the religious life's... What is he talking about? <laughs> he's kind of going in circles at this point in the post, I think. Yeah. So he's talking about the printing press and the Islamic world and talking about abuse in his inbox. The world terrifies me. This is the ending. But all of us are safe and all of us are protected. So when we're scared, we can only be scared of the things that are closest to hand. This is like what I was talking about earlier. How it's Doctor Who can kind of be symbolic for larger issues, I think. He says, we're meaner pettier, more bigoted, more complacent, more self-absorbed, and more amoral than ever before. I'm reminded of H.G. Wells, who, depressed after World War II, 
wrote a book in which he claimed that his depression proved the entire universe to be coming apart at the seams. More and more of us are that self-obsessed, now that well-prepared to write our own neuroses over the face of the world. I know I am, God help me, and in my world, even Doctor Who is the enemy this week. You know, it only just occurred to me, I've described the real world in exactly the same way that Russell T Davies describes the Doctor Who one, and I object to what's been done to the Doctor Who one because it's just like the real one. How awkward. And that's the end of Lawrence Miles's posts on The Unquiet Dead. It's quite a ride, that one. Yes. That, I mean, the first one is a really interesting review with lots to talk about and with a super interesting reaction. And this one is like a... a I feel like psychic Gwyneth that's peered into someone's soul. Yeah, it's like half confession, half rant, half kind of self-pity, half rage, half criticism of like all kinds of things and half like, you know, just live tweeting <laughs> things that are happening, going through his mind at any given time, just thoughts. This is what blogs were like back in the 2000s. <laughs> it's the most writerly way to react to anything, I think. It's just a pure writerly moment to make a, a like a, a sort of stream of consciousness essay out of this. Yeah. Extended interlocking metaphors throughout. Mm-hmm. I found it quite I don't know, evocative? Yeah. That oppressive feeling, and especially that that lots of people are mad at me, but I think I'm right. And I think the right thing to do is to stand by this thing. I I can't help feel that uh, I I wouldn't have I don't even think that his language in the original review is unjustified. Uh, I I wouldn't have personally phrased a lot of way wrote like he did, and there's a lot of words I wouldn't use especially. I mean, the worst thing he says in the original post about Gatus is thoughtless half-wit, right? And yeah. so, I mean, it, yeah. But that was, it, that was... That was a changed version, yeah. Obviously, it gets very intense when it comes to... Yeah, I know that was a revised version after after whatever he put, like, originally and then backspaced, you know, a bit later. But nonetheless, in terms of what he actually published, you know, he, he doesn't... I mean, half, half-wit is a quite unpleasant name to, to call someone, and that's an insult it's based on, you know, ideas of just making out that someone's stupid, which I think is, is a nuanced difference from just calling them thoughtless. But, yeah, so that's pretty mean. But, I mean, in terms of, like, it's not like he, I mean, <laughs> threatened to burn Gators' house down or anything, you know? And the focus of the original is very much on the text. Um, and, and reading it, I, I, I find it hard to accept in good faith that people really thought Miles was calling um, Gettys a racist. Because that's just not in the review. He doesn't say that. That doesn't come across. He talks um, specific- specifically about the show as a cultural like force. Yeah, I think, I think good faith is a good way to think about it. I think a lot of the responses to this were probably in extreme bad faith. Because I think, I mean, you, you see how people react to racism, any rape call out of racism now. You know, just magnify that by how people would have reacted in 2005. Yeah. yeah. I th- it's. I think it's worth uh, looking at what his collaborator Tatwood eventually wrote about the Unquiet Dead. So, by the time the About Time books, which in the era that Loz was co-writing them, were covering Classic Who, by the time they circled around to New Who, uh, well, the book on Series One and Two is just by Tatwood. It's not by Lawrence Miles anymore. Uh, man, the book shifted uh, when that happened. But uh, Tatwood mentions his former collaborator. Lawrence Miles, when he's covering The Unquiet Dead in his About Time book. And he says, We have to mention this. 
former About Time co-writer Lawrence Miles castigated this story for perpetuating in fantasy form the contentious claims that amongst genuine asylum seekers coming to Britain were sponges, parasites, and terrorists planning to abuse our hospitality. See, of course, the accompanying essay, which is a fairly long essay called Is the New Series More Xenophobic? They go on to say, in fact, fringe right-wing parties claimed that all asylum seekers were parasites. This was being stated as fact in some of the less salubrious tabloids and occasionally came up during the run-up to the 2005 election. It talks about how the Tories uh, thought they could regain support by campaigning on those sort of issues. Moreover, the story requires the doctor's human instincts to be the means by which the fiendish foreigners trick him into letting them play dirty. Supporters of Gatiss fell over themselves to deny that this was the intent of the script and claimed that he was entirely innocent of any such foul thoughts. This was was five years before he wrote a story in which Winston Churchill was presented as a sweet, (laughs) lovable old rogue completely incapable of firebombing Dresden or exacerbating a preventable famine that killed 3 million in 1943, to say nothing of what he got up to his home secretary. When you watch this, you can decide for yourself whether how ingenious Gatiss really is, and whether it was wise to spend the third story of an entirely new series subverting cliches of the old series when 80% of the viewers wouldn't have seen those episodes. Wood's pretty critical with New Who on the whole, so that that last bit, he, he goes into a bunch of stuff about how he thinks Gatiss makes too many references to other stories. But I, I don't know, I'm kind of charmed by the um, bit of loyalty that Wood had for Loz there <laughs> and kind of... Um, validating i think what uh, Loz said about gatus and the unquite dead yeah it's nice to have someone twist the knife into gatus just a little bit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh well much like dickens himself i feel kind of depleted after those lengthy lawrence miles blog have you posts. not had your faith in the universe and your boundaries just exploded open well i i i do feel kind of affirmed by that i think this type of writing has become much more normalized in the intervening years since 2005. Uh, Although generally not by actual writers of Doctor Who, whether the show or the expanded universe. In fact, I think people are even more reticent now because, you know, the type of fan who wants to write for Doctor Who and is writing big blog posts like that, oftentimes they're enormously desperate to be able to write a big finish short trip or whatever <laughs> this type of writing i think is more commonplace now not among doctor who writers or would be doctor who writers but i think you can see more castigation of doctor who writers and taking this show seriously as a cultural force which i think is a good thing and you know sometimes invective might be overdone but it's like miles says they're not innocent little furbies you know releasing these episodes into the world like they're getting paid for this and they're putting something in front of millions of people's eyes that that means something and i think that does that is a kind of responsibility what else is it well with a view to kind of looking at the episode itself in light of everything we just talked about like because uh, obviously you said you, you you basically agree with the argument that mars is making like you see his point and stuff and how do you feel um because i know you really like this episode you said it's one of your favorite uh, historicals and you hear and such and um so do you feel like um let's say i'm not sure how to put this how do you feel overall about like this episode as I mean as its legacy and just revisiting it and just like do you feel like it's affected at all by like the issues around it or yeah do you feel it's not really a big deal of course but I think I I think I talk about or conceive of episodes in a different way 
than some people. Like I'm, what frustrates me most in discourse around Doctor Who episodes is when I think people get into these binary oppositions that we were talking about. Like, you know, it frustrates me hugely when certain people get castigated and then other people get forgiven, even though the issues between them are completely and utterly linked. I like to conceptualize all these episodes as holistically as I can. And so, I, I'm i not doing the godly judging of Gatiss on the scales, but I think you have to look at this as the totality of what it is, in which it's an enormously successful episode in loads of ways. And I think a lot of it's very well written, and I think a lot of it's beautifully realized, and I also think a lot of it is very racist and very, very ugly. I don't know. None of it cancels it out for me. This is I, where I kind of feel like Loz in that, you know, I feel like is everyone else crazy besides me and, you know, some other people I talk to is I don't understand the it, things can only be one thing kind of thing. Mm. Mark Gatiss writes some racist things. He also writes some very humanistic things. Like, of course he does. We're all complicated people. I, 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 don't, I don't even understand the other paradigm enough to really respond to it because I don't understand the people that see it in those more binary ways enough to really respond to that, I think. The, the inability to, to find that nuance. I, I, uh, again, off topic, but um, I think Captain Jack Harkness is both groundbreaking and important queer representation that means a lot to me personally and not amazing queer representation in lots of ways. Yeah. Things can be multiple things at once. Yeah, I kind of find the act of revisiting an old episode for, you know, like, leisure or pleasure or whatever, it's often not necessarily the same thing as an act of critique. I think when you just sit and watch it, what's going what's to affect... I mean, when I sit and watch something, what's going to affect me more is how well it's executed. Whereas, you know, even if I have, like, enormous <laughs> sort of concerns politically or subtextually about, like, what is happening on certain levels of the episode, I mean, it's not necessarily going to affect the amount of uh, my willingness to revisit it or you know, go back to it or take an interest in it. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have, like, a huge fondness for this, like, episode in particular or whatever, but, like, I still, you know, I was still easily able to point out and enjoy, like, bits of it that I think are really well done and, like, bits that are um, a really interesting look into the earliest days of New Who and just the, the way everything was still kind of just being put together at that time. The way that things that feel incredibly um, almost played out now... We're still kind of fresh back then, and still sort of relatively new and untried. Yeah. So yeah, it's really uh, intriguing either way. I think also, you know, how we took some issue with how Miles was conceiving of Classic Who as like this pure, uncorrupted, maybe not apolitical, but not um, evil. Yeah, fundamentally harmless. I think is how he characterised it. Really, fundamentally harmless vision of the show. I also feel that kind of thing where too that if we conceive of an episode like The Unquiet Dead as unsanctionable i feel like that's kind of implicitly it's framing pretty much every episode as pure then isn't it which i don't agree with i feel like Mm. a lot of this a lot of the underpinning elements of the show i mean you can unpack in lots of ways basically and i think if it's and you can you can you can take this to actors as well if you want to just single out certain episodes or certain people as singularly evil i think that actually does this reverse thing where it implies everything else is pure and good uh, which I think is like a actually a much more it, it, that that disturbs me quite a bit when we kind of implicitly say you know well this person was the only bad one and they because that 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 positions everyone else as good doesn't it it says they haven't done anything yeah. wrong if we're just saying this person's done something wrong then we're forgiving people that 
should be questioned, I think. And so too, I think if we just single out an episode like The Unquiet Dead or Journey to the Center of TARDIS or something is like being the singular racist ones. I feel like there's a kind of implication there that all the other episodes have no problems and they're all like smiles and okay, which I don't like either because then I feel like it's like we're doing like a two minutes hate where we channel everything wrong about the show into like these singular episodes of it, which I, I don't know if you guys agree that that kind of happens, but I feel like there's this sense that we like to say, well, this is the racist one, but that, that implies all the others aren't racist ones. Uh, and I feel like then then you're ignoring some of the underpinning aspects of the show. And, you know, some of the best bits of the show are when we look at those underpinning aspects and we try to rewrite them or reevaluate them. That's what a lot of us love about Series 9 is that it actually knuckles down and it says, what's the deal with the Doctor-Companion relationship? And what's the deal with the gender dynamic of it? And it actually tries to unpack and rewrite that. And it's, I think, one of the best things the show ever did. And so that's part of my issue with when we kind of organize like the unquiet dead is the racist episode or so-and-so is the racist episode because i think then it implies everything else is squeaky clean and then when we do that we're not interrogating the kind of more underpinning aspects of the show not the underpinning aspects of single episodes but the underpinning aspects of the show in general which i think are where the more fruitful ground to change things or address things is rather than singular aspects of the show like the refugee equivocation in this episode does that make sense Yes, I, th- I think because the show is delivered to us in units of this is an episode and this is its writer, I think people are terribly good at singling out a specific episode to go all in on. But when it comes to actually looking at the underlying context, the larger premises, the subtext of the, the wider show, the building blocks of the show, the underlying like fundamental core aspect of it, people aren't quite as adept at like confronting those or thinking about those critically. Because in a way, it's that kind of, which is the way things are. It's that kind of effect. It's like when people are so used to things working one way, they don't want to really sort of dig into it. And I think with uh, Miles and RTD, some of their biggest successes are when they said, well, the show doesn't have to be this way. You know, there's no reason the show has to continue being a certain way. What if we imagined a new way that the show could be? And that, you know, led to enormous creative success and in RTD's case, commercial success. So I think every way you slice it, there's always gains to be had by not just taking you know, elements of the show is that's the way it is. So that's the way we continue it. And the aberrations are the aberrations. And, you know, they're the sole aberrations and we condemn them and then we move on. I think there's enormous potential to look at the more consistent aspects of the show and say, well, what's going on here? Can we do this differently? Uh, Is it worth at least questioning how it's done or playing around with doing it different ways? Even something like the time war, which isn't like a social element, but that comes out of that, you know, doesn't it? What if we conceived of the show in a different way? What would... Uh, Lawrence Mars, think of Refugee from the Planet Scaro, Chibnall's resolution. <laughs> oh, God. Next, we time travel back two years. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, we will. Yeah, I think that they, they pair quite well, don't they? They do, for sure. Cheese and wine. And that rounds out our discussion for The Unquiet Dead. We have another Christmassy December discussion to come soon, the week after this. Our... Uh, And that one pairs quite fittingly with this one. Uh, But in the meantime, happy December. Please fire away with any of your comments and thoughts on The Unquiet Dead or anything else we touched on here. Stuff in The Unquiet Dead, stuff outside the episode, anything we did or did not talk about, whatever is on your mind. You know we always eagerly read the comments. So spread that December cheer. And thank you very much for listening.